We who are about to die salute you. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Chris and Chris are back with episode 29 of Tory Mondays here at the Chris and Reggie channel. We got, boy, after this, we got two regular episodes left. It, uh, it's it been going way too quickly, but it, at the same time, it felt like we'd never get here. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I am just as surprised as you are, sir, to be quite honest with you. Like, when I thought about the daunting task of doing 31 episodes of a singular topic... <laughs> Never thought we'd get there, but guess what? We are on the doorstep, brother. Unless mm-hmm. uh, unless an anvil falls out of the sky, right which now it crushes, which it might. Yeah, we're still not ruling out the anvil. We're gonna we're gonna make it to the finish line, and then possibly even jump on some uh, some of the extra shows as well. This is gonna be uh, this mm-hmm. gonna be amazing. Absolutely, we will go into the beyond after that. Ooh, yes. the beyond known as the the evil evil. What, what, I don't even know the name of the series. What's it called? It's Electric Undertow. Undertow. Yes, there we go. And I've I've uh, I've recently reread mm-hmm. that. And really, uh, guess what? I didn't I didn't hate it. Oh, I didn't good. hate it. Oh good. I can't I, believe it. You know, I honestly. I know I flipped through them, but I, I I can't even swear that I've ever actually read them, the you know cover to cover. So this no, is going to be very interesting. I have not read them in their entirety until like last week. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it'll be like three or four weeks from now where I'll actually read them in their in their uh, in their yep. full and uh, delicious whatever. But <laughs> we will have a uh, we will have the full flavor of Dan the Scan's mustache to, to keep it, up it is going. It forward. is almost exactly what we know already, with the mm-hmm. exception of some very nice stylish jackets and haircuts. There we go. We are we are going into the 80s, kicking and screaming, even though it'll be like 1989. Um, but before we get into today's issue, and I mean, there's not going to be a whole lot of back matter this episode. If that's you know, if that's what uh, what brings you here, uh, we don't have much. Uh, this this is a very peculiar month at Marvel, where you know they they reuse the bullpen bulletin page from the month prior um all the ads except for one are exactly the same and and we flipped through other books from this month in marvel history and it's slim pickings for anything oh, outside yeah, you're the not story. wrong sorry yeah so we'll this you know the focus of this episode is going to be uh it's going to be interesting uh for for folks listening here it's going to be a little bit different than usual we got uh, some special stuff but one of the special things we have is the return of pitch force moratory now i think boy this was many many weeks ago probably like episode 18 maybe 18, Epis- you are correct yeah where we did uh strike force moratory the animated series season one and so you know what what comes after season one well, well i would i would say if, 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 <laughs> yes if you're able to do proper math season two so mm-hmm. there you go we're not even estimating like my like my kids do today and in, in their weird mathematics that they give kids mm-hmm. i estimate 
that we are on season two right now. And yep. boy, do we got a good one. And like you said, we've got some special, special stuff planned for this episode. And stay tuned right after Pitch Force Moretta, because we are going to dive deep into something that I think that our listeners are not only going to uh, be buzzing about, but this one could be talked about for a long time to come. So I hope you guys enjoy. But strap in, because we're ready for season two. We sure are here. So now the story. Moratory Academy is a school built exclusively for education and training an exclusive group of students that gain spectacular powers and abilities under the tutelage of Professor Kimo Tolima. This is all stuff we know. The school has two groups of students. They're led by two of the best teachers that have come through the academy ranks, and those are Beth Louise Neon and Yuri Porogov. Commander Yuri. I yes, can't say yes. his name. <laughs> Yuri can't pronounce his last name. Um, now, both Team Neon and Team Yuri are extremely competitive students who want to be at the top of the class at Moratory Academy. Unbeknownst to the kids, in less than a year, an alien threat looms above the Earth ready to strike. And their training at the school is not to hone, hone their powers and achieve academic excellence. It's actually to prepare them to defend the Earth against the Horde. Now, that horde has designs on taking over the secret labs of the school and stealing the secrets to the Moratory Project. Now, this is all stuff we know. We left off last time as the previously hidden Hordian Raiders, they've finally shown their hand to Earth. And so Team Neon and Yuri are racing to stop the invaders from taking over. Now, Yuri's team got the heads up first. Hmm. Wonder, wonder what's up with that. Hmm. Uh... uh yeah, and already they have a head start on Team Neon. The kids will finally see action during this season, and we will see what happens when the kids deal with their school being taken over, not only by the enemy, but by people in high places of power. So the the you know the watch phrase here is trust no one. Strike Force Moratory, the animated series, continues right now. And uh, so yeah, you want to start introducing some characters. All right, a little or bit of reintroducing. Yeah. We're going to get you back up to date exactly with some of the folks that we had last season. But they repeat, and we're going to add a few new members just so you're aware of who these folks are. We're going to start with Professor Beth Neon, the Academy Science Teacher. Now, Beth is the kid's biggest confidant and knows she has a special group of exemplary students in her class. Herself and Talima train the kids secretly in a hidden lab and a training center known as the Garden. Beth has hidden powers of her own that she keeps secret from not only Dr. Tolima, but the kids as well. Mm-hmm. We got Viking, erstwhile teen and singular comic fan, Harold Everson, has powers. <laughs> One issue only. <laughs> Just single, single. He's, he's a, he is a little tunnel vision there in his comic fandom. Uh, now, his powers are deflection and mind reading. He's heavily interested in becoming the leader of the Moratory, you know, his little group, but he struggles with the disapproval of his parents. Ain't that always the way? It is. We also have, we have Snap, who's who's the Veronica to Vikings Archie. So mm-hmm. we have we have Lorna, and she's Harold's love interest and classmate. Lorna has eyes for not. Not Harold, but Big Robert. She can create plasma energy, but also has the ability to shape it into inanimate objects. And with a snap of her fingers, similar to how Green Lantern works, she can do anything or create anything with her powers. So Lorna is the top recruit of her group. And she is super into fitness, which leaves Robert and Viking left to catch up. Mm -hmm. Now let's meet Big Robert. He's known as Fort here. 
He's a jock with a mysterious past. He's got some serious self-consciousness issues in private. He, you know, he doesn't let those show, but when he's alone, they get the better of him. He's got a zest for fighting the Horde. He's got the ability to grow larger when he needs to. He comes in handy, of course, when fighting the Horde, because he can grow. His powers are not refined yet, and he often loses control of his uh, of the monster inside, but he tries to keep it hidden. Now, only Adept knows Robert's issues, and she does what she can to help keep him under control. So they, uh, they are creating a special bond, the two of them. We also have Aileen who is Blackthorn. She is the bookworm the bookworm of the group, and she's the ugly duckling as well, or so she thinks. She spends most of her time studying and dreaming about Harold. Now, she can melt things with her bare hands and likes to build things in her spare time. She's the techno, she's the techno geek. She can really make stuff happen. She's also mm. obsessed with classic movies and quotes famous movie lines to the dismay of her teammates. She's that one. We we I think we all know that person in our groups, right? Uh, She's the Raphael of the group. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we have Jaylene, who's adept. Uh, now, she's the problem solver of the group. She can solve mysteries with forensic precision. She's able to use her mind to see what happened in a particular scene. She's able to read people's minds and speak many other languages. Now, she's uh, she is, you know... In the comic, she's got that Christian spin, but it's gone here to suit the TV show era. Uh, yet she is still that one to grow on character. Uh, <laughs> she always presents like the moral side to the fight against the Horde. So she's uh, it's not quite it's a it's like a non secular uh, morality in the, in the show. <laughs> God bless them all or not. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, we also have Mikhail who is Splinter, who is our homegrown moratory, which we've created right here on this show. (laughs) So he's a Russian foreign exchange student and has the ability to make things appear as they are not, able to splinter reality as it may be, an ability he uses to conceal himself. He is an outsider who doesn't gel well with the team, especially Big Robert. He's a spy in the class who works for another house on campus, namely Team Yuri, to report on the secrets of Team Neon, and Talima's moratory experiment. He also uses Aileen's insecurities to win her over and stick with him. What a dog, mm-hmm. this guy. Boo. It's true. Now, with with the team, they also have a mechanical cat named Weebo, because, you know, 80s cartoons, it's just something that happened. Uh, <laughs> now, the Weebo can, protects the kids from harm and helps to solve their problems. Uh, the cat has heightened x-ray eyes and scent abilities. To, uh, he can get any into anywhere at any time. Now, the cat is, you know, largely comic relief for the team and is actually Harold's cat. Now, the thing of it is, the cat's secretly owned by the Eversons, Harold's parents, to keep uh, maybe keep an eye on their son while he's away from home. What a bunch of dirty birdies those Eversons are. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Can't, can't trust nobody, remember? <laughs> and we're going to start with the other team. So Team Yuri. So across the campus, another professor is working on behalf of the Paidea and has his own team of trainees working towards the same one-year goal, unbeknownst to other houses on campus. Nobody knows Yuri's son is Splinter, who's secretly infiltrating Team Neon. Now, of course, one of the first group members is Radiant, Mr. Louis Armanetti. He actually works for Team Yuri, or did. Uh, he has the ability to create bright lights and pyro attacks. Louis is a conflicted recruit who also has feelings for Aileen on the team, Neon and stumbles upon the Horde secret invasion, but tries to keep that knowledge to himself, you know, not knowing what the other team are secretly preparing. 
Louis is Hispanic and has no mustache, thank you very much, <gasps> and a very <laughs> likable kid <laughs> with a heavy conscience. You don't want to be that kid who's, uh, you know, in high school with the with the large, large, thick, brush-like mustache. You don't want to be that guy, Chris. No, you don't. You know, we and we—that's another guy we all knew in high school. We all knew him. <laughs> um, now we have Brava, Dominica Contreras. Now this is a, uh, you know, she's big, she's buxom, she's almost like She-Hulk-like strong. Now the hard-nosed leader of Team Yuri, she's a, uh, well, she's not a fan of Harold, Harold Everson or really anybody on his crew. She's super competitive uh, and she hates to lose. She constantly berates the guys on her team to work harder and uh, live more. You know, her nickname is Dom. And we have Sheer, Walter Fizioglu. <laughs> Uh, yes, Walter Fez. Um, his powers include the ability to cut and shear things precisely. He's a snobbish recluse who is a vegan and CrossFit enthusiast, and he can <laughs> dice veggies faster than anyone before him, and he's got a passion for gardening. He keeps his room filled with plants that he carefully curates. Also, among those plants is one Hordian plant that he has unknowingly intercepted that'll, uh, that'll gonna come into, uh, come to pass soon here. And the team, since just like me, they can't pronounce his name, they call him Fez. <laughs> Why do I hate this guy already? Is it because he's vegan yeah. and CrossFit? I hope not. I hope I'm not tra- that transparent. <laughs> how, do you, how do you know if someone's uh, vegan and at the CrossFit? How do you know? <laughs> because they won't stop telling you that they're vegan and at the CrossFit? You are maybe? right on the money. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, other team members, we have Silencer, Akia Bandaraiki. Likes to make, you know things quite to be able to turn the volume up as well as the rock and the shake thing. She is a human volume button. Now this version, she's Chinese in this iteration and she's super, super intelligent. She is the ying to Aileen Yang, pardon the pun. Now equally oh, wow. and brilliant and aggressive in spelling competitions and other school academic challenges. Her nickname is Bandy. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, because I don't know how to say her name either. <laughs> uh, wild card, Johnny yeah. Cronulla. The fashion, (laughs) the haberdasher, Uh, the fashion plate of the team, and he keeps the team sharply dressed while having the ability to steal anyone's powers who is nearby. Makes him the team's, you know, most proficient student because he can he can match anybody's powers. He is, you know, literally the wild card. I love it. Now, Mm -hmm. this time, now those were the cast from season one. We're going to add a little bit of spice because we got some new kids. We're going to be introduced in this. Hanging tough. Yep. Hanging tough. They're rough. Step by step. <laughs> baby. No, anyway, whoops. We're off track. We're <laughs> off track, baby, as usual. We're going to be introduced to Jason Edwards. Now, he is a former Hordian captive who was taken hostage for years and lived among the Horde as a cleaner or a custodian on the biggest Hordian mothership there is. Now, this season, he sees an opportunity to help another group of hostages, which we'll find out a little bit later. Now, Jason takes the opportunity to not only free these people, but to finally get revenge on the Hordians themselves. Now, hmm, that name could possibly come in handy. Nobody's certainly mm-hmm. taking that name. His, <laughs> his superpowers not only allow him to grow in size with incredible super strength and durability. Jason is a one-man revenge squad. Mm-hmm. Yoko Watanabe, her nickname is Burn. Now, she's a new girl to the city who has an uncontrolled power of creating fire. Now, she's learning to keep her powers in check and has eyes for Jason Edwards. Mm-hmm. Also, a healthy competitive spirit for her friend slash enemy, Fiona Windsor, who we'll meet in just a little bit. 
we also have Dan the Scan. So Dan Baker is that new – he's that kid you knew in school who always sat alone at the lunch table. But he's always that person who's the sharpest knife in the drawer, the first person to raise his hand for questions. Now, Dan mm-hmm. has the power to scan anything, which comes in very handy, but also gets him in trouble at times. He is a man who was very organized and a very, very structured teen who's possibly on the autism spectrum. And he likes to maintain normalcy and structure as much as possible. But it makes very awkward for his relationships, um, you know, especially within his department. But Dan steps up in all cases when it comes to leadership. And he tries to keep his teammates all on task. Mm-hmm. Finally, Fiona Windsor, her codename is Lifter. Now, she's new to North America, and she's attending Moratory Academy on a European scholarship. Now, this fiery brainiac comes to the academy with a chip on her shoulder and a sea of awards in competitive weightlifting. She is the dynamic athlete the school has been waiting for. Finally, someone to compete mm-hmm. against. Bravo. This is great. Yes. Now we're going to dive right into the episode. So episode one, we pick up exactly where we left off. So episode one is named Race to Arms. So we pick up where we left off, and we have the visitors. We have visitors on planet Earth. The Horde has arrived. But before our heroic team uh, can get organized, Team Yuri rushes his squad, a moratory freshman, into battle against an alien race on campus grounds. The Horde finally make their presence known, dispatching the team with their sheer overwhelming numbers, seizing seizing the Moratory Academy, but this time as disguised human teachers. They're doing this unbeknownst Mm. to everybody. These new instructors have Team Yuri, who met them first, underneath their spell, so they ain't telling no lies to nobody. But by Mm. the time our heroes, heroes Team Beth catches up, everything seems as normal, and the kids are just informed that the school... It's not under Hordian occupation. No, it's been bought by new owners, and they meet the new dean of the academy, Thandar Krushinsky, the old <laughs> Hordian leader, Thundercrush. Despite the brainwashed team Yuri's best efforts to cover the Horde, Will Deguchi knows something is just not right. Now, Harold, he contemplates graduation, which is coming up very soon. So, you know, team, team Beth, a lot of them have been around for a while, so it's almost graduation time. But he tries to get Lorna to spend a quiet evening and a date at the fairgrounds while Robert seethes in the background. I don't know how Harold pulled this off because, you know, uh, Lorna, you know, she only had eyes for Robert, but she's going to give True. Harold a little chance. So this is good. Now, Jaylene mm. notices Robert's foul mood and tries to console him. They end up spending the evening at a fast food joint where Robert finally lets loose of all his feelings for Lorna and his dislike for Harold while pounding a massive stack of burgers down in his way, <laughs> Jughead style. Yeah. Now, Robert and Jaylene just end up talking until the lights go off in the restaurant. You know, a fun little moment. For two lost souls swimming in a fishbowl. Meanwhile, Lorna and Harold's date go sideways as good old Mikhail tries to win Lorna a large plush toy at the fair and gets a kiss and a hug in return. This leads to a huge fight where both kids get booted from the fair while Lorna sears the toy in half with her plasma blast out of anger. <laughs> now, episode two is uh, is a very special episode. It's called Flowers for Our Children. Uh-oh. Now, yeah, this, is, uh, this is one of those. Now, the school is under siege, and only Will Deguchi knows it for certain. He seeks out Beth Neon to help him sh- slow the, his emotion-dispersing powers as to, you know, not give up the, go- the ghost here, not, not to blow his cover. 
uh, he tells Beth everything that he's surmised so far. Now, Weebo, the team's uh, robot cat, overhears this discussion and stores the information in its memory banks and uh, rushes away. Team Yuri, still under the spell, they're excelling in class, getting great grades, winning all the sports competitions on campus. I mean, they're just making Team Neon look like fools. Uh, Beth tries to warn Yuri and the kids that, you know, that, but they are they're under the spell of these new faux human instructors, and he's just not listening to anything. He is not hearing a word of it. Much later in the afternoon, Brava returns to the classroom after forgetting her books, and she stumbles into the classroom where Thundercrush is out of disguise, accidentally Ooh. revealing himself to the te- to the leader of Team Yuri. Now, with their secret revealed and Brava on the run, she is chased down by the Horde before finally getting cornered by Thundercrush and his goons. Team Yuri all snap out of their trance-like state, coming to her rescue before getting beaten down. And now they find themselves at the mercy of their new foes. Weebo leads a fired-up Beth Neon to their rescue. Beth unleashes her secret plant life powers to shock uh, all the students, enslaving Thundercrush in her vine-like grip while the other members of Team Neon join the fray. They force the Horde into fleeing mode. They're making a run for it. Now, the kids are victorious, but not without a price. Beth Neon suddenly collapses from overexerting her secret powers. The kids, including Team Yuri, rush to her aid, but she smiles, you know, seeing all the students together, and she tells the team an important lesson of acceptance and teamwork She tells the kids that she, you know, just to be like one of them, she took the moratory process to protect them. Beth Neon fades away to the shock of her kids. Brava is ordered by Yuri to leave the scene immediately and not to socialize with those darn Neon kids. Having enough, Brava finally takes a stand. She sends Yuri packing to the joy of the rest of the team. The team, all together now, makes a pact to stop their feud and work as a unit in order to protect their school. Uh, what a what a what a what a beautiful moment! It was. It was. <laughs> Cole Beth had to, had to give her life. Anyway, mm-hmm. in in homage, it's graduation day, episode three. Following the events of the Hordian attack, the school is now being investigated by the government known as the Paidea. They're going to definitely find out what's going on here, Chris. Yeah, I with think the so. horde in, yes, with the horde in hiding and plotting their next move, it's graduation day at Moratory Academy, and the valedictorian, Mr. Hardcase, gives a speech admitting to all of his friends that he overcame a learning disability and to believe in yourself and you can achieve anything. Now the graduates, Howard, Robert, Jaylene, Lorna, Burke, Louie, and Mikhail, all have a fun day with the other students before saying goodbye for the final time. The kids watch their friends leave and wonder what's in store for the rest of the students and the school with the government now in control of the school. Hmm, nobody likes that government interference. <laughs> but anyway, Sheer begins to have a headache but seems to shake it off, not knowing what to think of the sudden pain, which we'll get to a little bit later. Now, Weebo watches on beeping and booping, indicates something is wrong. Now, the kids, you know, the remaining kids anyway, Walter... Aileen, Akia, Dominica, Ruth, Pilar, and William go to the mess hall. Now, you know, after a long day in a graduation ceremony, they want to make a proper dinner, not that crap that they were served at grad. <laughs> they want to use their powers to make dinner, so we get that, that whole team effort. But it ends up, of course, in a food fight with good old Yuri covered in eggs. The show ends with the horde monitoring the kids 
the kids going away party as Thundercrush grins as behind him aboard the Hordian mastership or uh, the large, you know, mothership or whatever, sees mm. the original graduates of Team Beth. They've been captured, so they didn't get away, you know, with with just graduating and leaving. No, sir, they were all rounded up as soon as they left the school. And they're being led to a Hordian cell in the craft as the alien leader squeals for joy at his conquest. Now, the captured kids have to pass by an observation room on the ship where another nameless student carefully cleans against his will the Hordian craft. Now, witnessing the kids in certain danger, we find out that the guy's name is Jason Edwards, and he's been a long-term prisoner who works on this ship as a custodian slave. And he finally pl- he plans on finally doing something about it. He ain't taking it no more. And he promises not only to free the kids, but to get revenge on his Hordian captors. Mm-hmm. Now this takes us into episode four, which is the first part of a two-parter, so a moratory double-sized episode. Now the kids in detention by the Padilla are causing a huge mess in the school cafeteria following graduation. Uh, what follows is a breakfast club style detention scene. Uh, the kids are you know, sent to that detention over the weekend to make up for their poor behavior. Uh, the kids begin to uh, get on each other's nerves while also getting to know one another a bit better. Aileen meets another fellow detentionee, and that's Guy Harding, who was, and he was suspended for impersonating Radian Louie <laughs> while, while getting into the school newspaper. Now, while the, the kids fight and bicker with each other, the uh, horde makes another attempt to infiltrate the school, this time secretly allowed access by the new owners, the Padian School District themselves, who have been receiving school funding from the world government while the Hordians are considered a threat. So it's Those all about the dollars. Yes. Dirty birdies. They follow the money. Now, uh, the Hordian known as the Gentle Inquirer finally shows up at the detention hall as as detention captain, and he monitors the kids as a Hordian task force sweeps the school, stealing technology and supplies out of view of everybody, out of view of anybody. Weibo is capturing a video of this and immediately brings this to Yuri's attention, who looks surprised uh, that, you know, then suddenly switches Weibo, the robot cat, off and hides the poor thing in a filing cabinet drawer. So at this point, we're not sure of Yuri's intentions, which, uh, you know, anybody familiar with Yuri from the comic knows that that's kind of where we were the whole time. Uh, Meanwhile, we revisit the kids who are being put through their paces by the Inquirer. Shear's headache becomes far too much to bear, and he goes off on the Inquirer, shearing a basketball into pieces out of anger. The Inquirer berates Walther in front of his team, beating him down verbally, and we see him show vulnerability as Brava tries to control, console him. Seeing Walther being a problem and a disruption, he expels him from class and sends him to Yuri's office to be picked up by his parents. Now, while in the office, as Sheer is yelled at by, by Yuri, he is left alone momentarily. As Yuri you know, got a phone call from uh, Sheer's parents, he explains everything to them and you know, explains that, uh, that, uh, that Sheer has been expelled. It is then when Sheer hears some noise coming from inside that filing cabinet. He decides to check it out. He finds Weibo, who excitedly shows him the video of the Horde once again back at the school. Yuri returns to the room just minutes later after the call to Sheer's parents to find Walter and Weibo gone. Ooh, look at this. Interesting. Mm. Secrets revealed. 
Episode 5, Part 2. This one's called Sweet Revenge. Now we flash back aboard the Hordian vessel over the Earth as Thundercrush watches all the action on the video monitor in the control deck of the ship. Now he's snickering as he watches his plans unfold seamlessly. But he's unaware that Sheer and Weibo have, exposed, have exposed their plan once again. Out of the corner of his eye, he looks at the detention cell where the original moratory students, Harold, Jaylene, Robert, Louie, and Mikhail and Lorna, were all held, and it is empty. Looking back towards the main observation screen, the leader sees an escape pod blasting away from the ship. It's our heroes, and they're free. Confused on how in the heck did this happen, he looks around and is met with a huge punch from the Hordian prisoner, Jason, who KOs the Hordian superbad dead. Now, Jason seals off the main deck of the command ship while taking out several Hordian soldiers and taking control of the tip, the ship, this time saying, it's a little time, it's time for a little revenge. Now, back in detention, Ruth and Pilar are being forced to do extra work by the Inquirer. Of course they are. Now, Ruth, busy work, busy work. Yeah, Ruth is a little, uh, little upset by this, and she goes ahead and spikes the disguised Inquirer's coffee with a little touch of toxin making him go to the bathroom many times, much to the laughter of the kids. The Inquirer is furious with the children, which leads them all have to do extra work assignments, which upsets everybody. Will, however, is just overcome with visions and emotions, and he's trying to keep all this in check, and he begins to pick up that something is way off here again. Back to the Hordian vessel, Jason turns off the cloak of illusion that the Hordians have been using to virtually disguise themselves on, as humans on Earth. And we see scenes all over the place in the press. We see a press conference where, uh, with a school where the humans are shocked when the speaker is finally revealed as a Hordian. We have classrooms vacating as teachers are unveiled as aliens. The media begins to report that the Horde have invaded again. Now, back inside mm. detention, we roll back. The gentle inquirer has been exposed, and the kids make a stand. Will confuses the Hordian with a mind blast. Akia silences the security alarms. Burke hardens a series of basketballs and tosses them projectile-style at the inquirer, who is reeling from the kids' offense. Brava finishes the job by turning the trash can upside down and ramming it right over his head, stopping him cold in, his, in the can. As he as he was, you know, frequently <laughs> in the game. It's true. The kids break free of the detention area and running out on the campus, they meet Sheer and Weibo, and they're fending off a group of Hordian soldiers. This time, the team unites to battle the Horde, but they are unsuccessful. As the Horde begins to celebrate, the mothership enters the atmosphere above the school. Things look grim for the students who are just exhausted from battling. And now they have to contend with this giant mothership that's just about to land. But before we go to credits, we see that inside the ship, it's not Thundercrush and his goons. Nope, it's Jason Edwards, and he's there to liberate the kids. Jason uses the ship's freeze rays on the Hordian army as the kids look on shocked. As the ship lands, the deck of the ship opens, and they meet Jason. Revenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the final episode of the season, episode six, called The War is Over. And with it, the Horde have been defeated. The school is swarmed by world government military as the Padilla henchmen are being arrested as Professor, Professor Kimo Talima shows up, much to the joy of the children. 
Now, the team gets to know Jason, who is kind of the fish out of the water of the team here, and they head out on the town for a fun adventure to, to maybe pick up Jason some clothes here. We don't know if he's wearing a diaper necessarily at this point, but uh, he does need some new uh, new threads. Now, the ladies swoon over Jason, as he's uh, and he's oblivious to their comments uh, as he tries to find clothes to wear, and he has some interesting clothing choices, you know, the... Uh, those funny spots from, you know, cartoons and shows where they dress in silly things. They have, they have those dressing room scenes. We have that. Yes. Um, now, hijinks occur as he tries new food for the first time in years. Uh, he goes to the movies. He's stunned by how good the very old movie at this point, Star Warriors, is. Um, which, you know. Uh, now, Brava bids the team <laughs> farewell as she gets a message from her father in Paris who wants her to come home. She bids an emotional farewell to all of her friends and teammates. The team then finds out that Jason has freed the other original Moratory kids as uh, the team worries about where they are, since up to this point there have been no reports regarding their whereabouts. Now, this worries Dr. Talima and, and Guy Harding. They, they sent out a, uh, together, they sent out a distress beacon to attempt contact with the missing Moratory. From here, we shift gears and we see those original Moratory. You know, the kids are spiraling into space and they're just awakening from, from a sort of cryo sleep. Harold and Robert uh, man the controls as they attempt to find their bearings. Jaylene attempts to analyze their surroundings, but can only note that they are in considerable danger unless they can find somewhere to land. Burke hardens their ship, which has begun to, to, to deteriorate under the pressure of deep space. Uh, Mikhail there, he mocks the team for their space sickness because he's used to space travel, and he notes that there is a small planet somewhere in the distance. We jump back to Earth, and school is back in session. Dr. Talima has the support of the world government and uh, has isolated all the problems with invaders on campus grounds, and the Moratory Academy is back to business as usual. It's safe once again. Wildcard, Ruth, and Pilar come to the kids uh, with, the, with the big news that they have landed jobs with cosmetics and fashion companies, and they're going to be leaving as the kids celebrate their big promotions. Jason, with Aileen and Guy's help, enrolls as a student. Uh, you know, to do some catch up on his schooling that he'd missed while a prisoner of the horde. Aileen and Guy have uh, both have completed their programs, but stay on the school to work alongside Dr. Talima on a new project that, uh, you know, that he's been given here. Jason has his first day in school alone, and he fumbles his way awkwardly into school, trying to remain composed. In class, he meets his two new teammates, Fiona Windsor and Yoko Watanabe, and uh, they both immediately swoon after him. So things are looking pretty good for our man, Jason. We jump back to space where our OG students are having a, a little luck navigating their way to safety. Robert prepares the ship to commence upon the planet, but they have lost their thrusters and are now, you know, just floating. Uh, Lorna redirects her plasma energy inside the ship's core, giving them just enough thrust to make it to the surface of this unknown planet's surface. After a considerably rough landing, the team find out that the atmosphere is, in fact, breathable, and so they step out onto this new world. They're stopped immediately by a, a fish-like human, human humanoid creature named Vax-118, who warns them they mustn't go any further. And we leave the kids in uncertain danger. Our show and season ends with Talima being introduced to their new Moratory Academy recruits. Hmm. One from Japan named Tom Von Ock. Hmm. Oh, one from the Middle East named Zakir Shastri. Uh-oh. And one from Mexico named Julio Gonzalez. Hmm. Get that man a mask. Get that man a mask. 
I don't want to look at his face. Uh, now, <laughs> they're all warmly welcomed by Kimo, a leaning guy, and they're shown to the garden training center. Once they're left alone, Tom Von Ock receives a video message. It's from a gentleman, a fake-ass gentleman named Lamont, <laughs> who informs the new recruits of their actual mission. So, no, 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 these aren't students. They're called the Killer Moratory, and their mission, in no uncertain terms, is to destroy all them Moratory students that remain. Oh, my. And season two. What a cliffhanger. What a what a screw job here to, to finish what that What a up. tease. Yeah, Man. what a tease. You can't just leave me like that, baby. <laughs> I know it. I know it. So I, I think, like, we'll have to wait a little bit before season three happens uh, because oh, – uh, we gotta we gotta find ways to tie this all together, I think here. But yeah, that was season two. We hope you all enjoyed it. We had a good time putting it together and uh, and going through it here. It's a uh, it's a lot of fun. This is this is a a one hundred percent Bailey joint here, uh, putting together the animated <laughs> series here. And uh, it was uh, it was fun reading through this and and getting all the surprises and all the allusions to you know quote unquote real moratory uh, continuity. It's a uh, very, very cool stuff. Very, very cool. But uh, you might be wondering why we revisited the animated series. And, uh, well, there might just be a reason for that. And uh, I think we can probably go to that right now. Hey, guys, with us today, we are super pleased to have an expert in the animation field whose credits in the business are extensive. Folks, I'd like you to give a warm welcome to Mr. John Celestri. John, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, Chris and Chris, thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's oh, it's certainly it's, it's an all honor. our pleasure, sir. Absolutely. So before we get into the weeds here, John, why don't we just you know do a little get to know you? You know, get the get our listeners warmed up of uh, who you are and what you're bringing to the table. Okay. Well, I've been in the animation and uh, uh, comic book business uh, since the uh, the early '70s. Um, I'm I I was at Nelvana. I was I animated Boba Fett and Star Wars Holiday Special. I've worked on uh, He-Man and She-Ra and uh, out in California, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. And on uh, at Nelvana, I was on Rock and Roll. So <laughs> great stuff. So why don't we why don't we start out a little bit? When do you, you want to start the first question, Chris? Certainly, certainly. Now, uh, now, how did you get your start in animation? OK, um, well, I've always wanted. Well, animation, I didn't really get started in until I was about uh I didn't discover it. Uh, my uh, my ability to capture motion with a pencil on paper until mm-hmm. I was about uh, 23 years old, right. 23, 24 years old. But prior to that, as a kid, I always wanted to do comic books. Yes. Now you're talking. So okay. did you have so comic I books as a kid as do... well? Pardon? Did you have comic books? Were you a collector? Oh, yes. Yes. I've seen <laughs> your collection. That, that... <laughs> yes. Well, you remember... Uh, I was born in in 1949. Yep. So mm-hmm. so as a teenager, I was well, a young as a youngster, I picked up all of the all the, the first uh, the first runs of the uh, of the Marvel stuff. So nice. uh, I've got Absolutely. I've got my my um, Spider-Man's number one and all of the initial uh, re- uh Fantastic Fours and and the and uh, the introductions of Iron Man and and uh, Hulk and uh, Thor and what have you and so I mean I really enjoyed that I wanted to do comic books um, 
I then, uh, as I as I grew uh, grew older, I wanted to be a comic strip artist. So I would uh, develop yes. in my talents mm-hmm. that way. What I learned, I was learning how to ink, you know, pencil and ink and do all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I developed. I mean, uh, my my dad, my dad was a, a draftsman. He would he would um, he would be uh, copying pa- uh, um, plans for say ships. He worked on the he worked worked on the Nautilus. So oh, there's wow. a position to have hand and eye coordination that I I inherited from him. And so as I as I as I grew and developed working with my drawings and whatnot, I I, I learned how to uh, emulate and rather rather imitate uh, styles. You know, inking with a brush and a pen. I could I could I could mimic styles of um, of, of artists, and and so uh, I just developed and and taught myself how to draw. And uh, it, when it, when it seemed that I couldn't get into the comic book industry because they drew it was it, it was more the the, the world was, it was more illustrative than cartooning. Yes, and exactly. I enjoyed yeah. cartooning. Okay. So when I learned that I could, I, I discovered that I could capture motion by just with a few uh, pencil lines. I started saying, well, what about animation? And I, you know, I, that's how I got into it. And so, uh, so who, who were a few of your inspirations, John? Like, what did you, who did you look towards? Like, who were you, you know, basing your first original sketches on you, like your style? How did you formulate that? Uh, well, basically, it's a combination of all of the cart- uh, early <clears throat> Disney styles of the 1930s and 40s and also the Warner Brothers of the 30s and 40s and the comic book people. Um, a lot of my style comes from a much more innocent uh, point of view. I'm very wide open in my drawing. If you look at mm-hmm. the, the various stylings I have, um of the artwork that's online, you know, on my Indiegogo campaign. Um, I do very simple line art, but yet I will combine it in a much more, oh, um, hefty way. It's, I don't like flat work. Right. I draw mm-hmm. like I'm, um, I'm molding my drawings as though it were with clay and sculpting that way. Ah, okay. so what, what's cool. what's set, what set you on that path? Like what 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 is the difference between like drawing something that's 2D and trying to give it like that 3D feel? You know what I mean? OK, well, what it is, is I'm always searching. So therefore, on, on my paper, I don't start with, oh, I know exactly what I where I want that nose to be unless I have already designed it. If I'm gotcha. still searching, okay. I'm working with my pencil and you'll see a lot of lines scribbling lines and then as i'm as i'm searching for the shape that i want to have um you will note it it just it just keeps on working and working and working i'll work many different colors pencils to come up with what i'll I'll use yellow and then you know maybe a blue and then then green and then i'll start tying it all together with black and that would be my rough my, my 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 big big or early rough sketch. That's the way I I developed that um, through. It was uh, it was a, a book was uh, by Nicolaides uh, called the Natural Way to Draw, and that is you just keep on searching. You don't try to just get it down perfectly. You yes, keep, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So, uh, and, and that's, but that's a way when you're drawing naturally, you're not trying to emulate anyone. You're, you're looking for your own voice. And that happens as you, as you develop your muscles, your, your, you know, it's like a singing voice. Sometimes it takes a long time to learn how to sing, you know, how to breathe. You know, I'm still, tr- I'm still trying to figure out how to sing, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one one question I do have for you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like you say, now it's about finding your voice. And if anyone who's drawn a picture or, you know, looked at a, you know, a comic art page, you know, you can look at that sometimes and go, man, that's some really bad work until you actually sit down and try to draw it. Then all of a sudden you're like, hold on a second here. You know, this is really, really difficult to get these poses down and, you know, get that get that whole style going. And you touched on, you know, about getting into the industry and all that stuff. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what goes into becoming an animator and like beginning your career. Like, is it was it a tough field to enter? or Was it more or less like a like almost like a closed society that was, you know, sort of hidden away? Like, you know, comic books wasn't something that the average person could just jump in and become, you know, a Marvel artist. You know, there was there was a a path, we'll say. To get there so just talk to me about a little bit about you know becoming an animator and you know what was your initial path to getting that start okay well i started off just searching and 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 the thing that i i did was i i didn't know if there were any schools you know and there weren't any schools there were only school or there was only there was sheridan in oak out in oakville and in, in, up in toronto uh oak uh, the uh, ontario area and then there was cal arts in in Los Angeles, okay. So mm-hmm. those were the only two animation studios, uh, you know, places. And so what I did was I said, okay, in New York, where could I go for, to to uh, learn? Well, there was a school, you know, the school a school of visual arts had been starting, and so this is like 1972, 73, and it had right. been around, you know, for quite a while, but still there was no real school. I was still wor- I was working. I was I was a young man uh, in my uh, early 20s. And uh, so what I did was I signed up for a summer course. It was uh, one night a week for six weeks. Okay. And this was, you know, I think it was like July and August. So (laughs) what I did was I I started, I, I, what I did was I went and bought Super 8 sound uh, uh, clips from the Disney films. They had home movies. Oh, yes. And and so okay. what I did was there was uh, I bought a little home uh, editing uh, machine. It was a, a reel to reel, and I could I could, had had a TV on it, had a screen, and it was just you would just uh, I would run run the films over and over again, and so I would see they were going at 24 frames a second. So I studied that, and wow. I would see. And then so I could I could I could break down their drawings and the and the movement. I could say, oh, it's so now I hadn't gone to school yet. I didn't know anything about exposure sheets or anything of that nature. I was just experimenting and discovering on my own. Now, that's another thing that most people there is a lot of material that is online today. But back then it was very difficult to find information. And the and the and the one book that really kicked it off for me was the Preston Blair's uh, animation book. And at that, at that time it was a dollar. I still had, it was, it was an old book that I had, you know, and I had all of the basic premises and, you know, all of the various uh, principles in it. So Mm -hmm. I was using that. So I studied 
learning, you know, animation that way. And then when I got into the school, when the classes started, uh, I, um, I, I, there was a, a, a an older uh, gentleman who was a, uh, his name was Gil Moret, and he was a Terry Tunes and, and uh, a Paramount uh, uh, artist from, you know, story doing storyboards. And he taught, you know, from basic, basic uh, principles of animation in that, you know, the technical things, you know, how to, gotcha. what an exposure sure. sheet, how, you know, uh, how to run a camera, how to think about cross dissolves. Um, and, and then, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd maybe run a few uh, films for us to look at, but we all had to do a film in six weeks, you know, however short it was. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. That, that, wow. That, that's a daunting task. Oh yeah, no well I did I, I, I did a, I did a a a thirty a uh, what was it a, maybe a forty minute a forty uh, forty second sixty uh, second uh, film on my own I was just cranking it out and working at night doing whatever I could because I was still working full time but I spent all my mm-hmm. time doing this cranking it out and um, I just um, I did it then shot it on on the uh, camera. In, at school, and this was like a ten-foot-tall Oxbury, uh, you know, uh, camera, and uh, I learned how to shoot that way. And uh, so when he when he ran the film, um, and uh, you know, within three seconds of it starting, he said, "Did you ever animate before?" And I said, "No." And he just kind of like so. I he said, "You know how to animate, you know. Yeah, you you're, look at that. Have this natural mm. thing to do." So that's how I. And he was the one who gave me the after about a year or so of me trying to find, you know, uh, a way to break in. He connected me with some of his cohorts, uh, cohorts from the old uh, Fleischer and and Terry Toon studios that were starting that were working at New York Institute of Technology out in old Westbury, Long Island. And they were doing Tubby the Tuba and they needed young animators and a young, young artists who, who wanted to learn. So that they can go through the, the old studio system, and that's how I broke in. Because in 20, there hadn't been any new uh, animators, young artists, to go into the animation industry in about 20 years in New York. Wow. You know, Very so cool. so so from like the from the end of, of the middle of of uh, of 1950s, 1955 until about 1972 or 73, 74, there hadn't been no new people. And so I was part of that new wave of of uh, of kids coming in. And so that's where I, I, I learned. I learned day to day in the old apprentice system of here's the exposure sheet. Think you have to learn how to understand how why the drawings are there, where the drawings are going from and where they're coming from and what it, what's what's each drawing supposed to be. And that's how I learned. Very cool. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Chris, you want to hit him with the next question? Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned that, you know, you did this uh, like a 60 second piece there. What like what goes I mean, I've never animated before. And frankly, the the idea of doing that is terrifying. That seems like so much work, so much detail. What mm-hmm. goes into, say, from you know, soup to nuts, that sixty-second piece? Uh, what what well, was it really that? It depends on how elaborate you want to be, because you've Certainly. got to start with an idea. You have mm-hmm. to storyboard it. Uh, are you going to do music, or you, is it going to be silent? Um, you have gotcha. to make that decision. Then you have to figure out, well, uh, how often, you know, what, how much time to, you know, do you want to allot, allot for each, uh, 
um, you know, each each scene, each like action. Each, yeah. You know, you have to have a very good sense of timing, uh, what it takes to do something. I still have my old uh, stopwatch from filmation. You know, <laughs> oh, so, nice. that's awesome. You know, you know, so and that's broken down into um, it, it's it's a film, you know, a motion picture stopwatch. It is it is basically it breaks it down to frames per uh, per second and oh, uh, wow. frames per foot. So 16 frames per foot, 16, uh, um, uh, 24 frames per second. And so therefore, I, oh, wow. you know, I, but that was, I didn't have that back then. I would just like, I'd be just timing stuff on my own and just saying, well, it, you know, and I would have stopped watching just saying, okay, da, da, da. Or you do that 1001, 1000 or one Mississippi, two Mississippi. <laughs> so you figured that, or you do a, a click track, you go at t- you know, a beat, you know, with a, with a metronome. Oh, wow. And you, you team out uh, time that stuff out because music motion. There's a there's a theory of music. There's also a theory of motion, and that is mm-hmm. you understand how things, you know, just by physics alone, things accelerate and deaccelerate, and Absolutely. that you, you have to understand. Sure. This is the classic way of understanding movement. It is not a matter of of of, of drawing. Shooting, shooting the 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 idea, the uh, the pencil drawings, and then saying, "Okay, I'll keep manipulating the the screen time until it looks good." No, you have to understand what it is. Otherwise, you're just wasting. And, and it's kind of like not even playing by ear a musical instrument. You just are just hacking away until you 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 get a few notes, and then you assemble them on a track somewhere. Sorry, oh, mm-hmm. am I am I am I am I coming down too harsh here? <laughs> no, that makes, that makes a lot no. of sense. What, what, no, I, what I like about what I like about that, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead, I, Chris. I, I just, I just mean, uh, like, even before you know, pencil hits paper, there's just so much to consider, and uh, mm-hmm. I think that that's a uh, that's amazing. Just uh, everything you have to have in place even before you start. So that's yeah. uh, that's a big that's that's some big stuff. Yep. Yeah. It's a, and and it, it is a. Some people can, you know, some people understand it. Some people can do, uh, could, could, uh, can do it by rote, and some people uh, never learn. Gotcha. <laughs> I know a few of those, including myself, sometimes. <laughs> so, well, everybody so, can draw. Everybody's got a, a, a talent, and it's the simplicity of line. It's like, for example, everybody can do a line, squiggly lines, shapes, and forms. If you can learn animation, and this is what I learned you know, early on, and that is uh, from uh, studying, who I didn't realize at the time, uh, Bill Teitler, who, and Bill Teitler is the classic master animator that everybody else has fought, has been trying to emulate. Well, you can't Im- imitate him, but to just stand in awe of him. He is, uh, he was the, he was the master animator of Disney. He, um, he went from, his his range goes from Baby Dumbo, okay, yep. mm-hmm. uh, through Grumpy in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, through Stromboli in Pinocchio, and then Devil on Mo- on Bald Mountain. Oh, nice. That, wow. Yeah, that's some good. That's some different stuff there. Wow. Yeah, sure. right? that's a that's a range that it, almost nobody does. Wow. And, but it, but his wild. thing was you 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 don't draw the form, you draw the power, the vectors. So therefore. In, it's the forces that you draw the forces first that are are 
are on the screen, then you put the form on top of that because then you see how, for example, how how much squash should you put into a ball? Well, you just say, okay, let me see how much squash to do. And then you put the form on top of that or how how much to bend in a, uh, a character's neck. Well, you don't draw the yeah. whole thing. You just mm-hmm. draw there's the arc. You know, everything is lines of motion. I like what you said that because I think that that people who are learning today have almost an unfair advantage. So you you know you you physically had to learn this. You know what I mean? You didn't have a computer that was animating this stuff for you, or just you know. And basically, you know, when you're looking at animation and digital animation this day and age with 3D modeling, I mean, you know, two clicks of a button. And you can have this stuff done for you, you know what I mean? But you had, like, you actually learned your trade, you know, you actually learned how to draw it personally. And mm-hmm. that is a, that is a huge, huge difference. And, uh, you know, when you look at a cartoon that was produced in the 70s and one produced, you know, like a 3D, I don't even call it cartoons anymore, like 3D animation, mm-hmm. basically what, what's, what's relevant today. I mean, there's a huge difference, but there's a skill that I think that's being lost by some of today's animators that, you know, that your generation absolutely had and a computer sort of does that work today. And, you know, I, I really respect your your generation growing up because, you know, you had to really ply your trade to get these things to move on screen, man. So, you know, hats off to you guys. You didn't pay uh, you didn't pay four ninety nine for a piece of software on an Apple and, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do, do that work for you you know what i mean well good stuff. what's what's interesting is that where where i started that's where all of that start that when where at tubby the tuber at new york tech uh that's where that all of that was started to be developed because uh tubby the tuba was being created by hand to uh to uh to study and to for edmund catmull who who uh really uh, was 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 a young man also on the other side of the campus, and they were developing, trying to develop computer graphics, computer animation, and so they used the uh, the basics for of, of what all the problems that needed to be solved that a computer would have to do to be able to do just uh, simple ink and paint or or in betweening. Or things of that sort, or motion, or camera work. You know, understanding, you know, acceleration and deacceleration, and and all of those various things. There's a there's a uh, if you go on my on my website, uh, my uh, my blog, uh, johncelestri.blogspot.com. You can you can Google it on and and it's my it's my website, and I have uh, I've uploaded the um, the actual a copy of the actual discussion and analysis of what was what was compiled back in 1978 you know to you know uh, looking at all of the various things that needed needed a computer needed to be worked on you oh, know cool. so it's 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 up there and you know I don't know how many people look at it but it's there you know, oh, um, and we'll link to that all in the uh, in the show notes here. So all those sure, links, yeah, uh, all yeah. of John's links will be will be there for you guys to to click on. Yeah, but I just wanted to say that, that that's that's a thing. So I, I understand what was going on because Johnny Gent, who was the big was the best Popeye fight expert, he was he was uh, supervising the animation on Tubby, and I learned a lot from him, especially how to th- uh, throw a punch on a you know with Popeye. 
uh, he'd come home. He'd come back from, you know, looking at the at the uh, at the testing that they were doing. They they'd give him. They said, "I have a draw." They they told me to try and draw, you know, a, a drawing with with this bar of soap, and, and basically that was a mouse, you know. And he says, and I said, "You just can't do it," you know. I mean, and back then you you know you had to complete the connection. You couldn't lift your pencil. You couldn't lift the bar because it would break the line. Nice. Oh. I, I, I like try to I, I like, add color. It would just spill out all across the screen. Uh, I, I love what you said there, John. So what's the difference? And and I'm sure you could pick this up when you're watching like cartoons or animation today. What's the difference in like give me an example of what you'd look for as in a character like throwing a punch. So what makes a difference in like a nice dramatic punch that you would put on screen and one that you know would not make the would not make the pass? Like what are you looking for when you're animating something and really yeah. giving it that oomph? What like what how would you animate it and what would you do with that? Yeah, okay. What you what you do is you do the anticipation, which is the you know like you're you're if you're gonna throw a punch, um, you wind up like a pitcher, you know you yep. you hold back the thing mm-hmm. and then you start. But you you never see the connection between the uh, between the jaw and the fist. You only see, you see an after image of the punch having you know. <laughs> uh-huh. a, it's like it's like a baseball bat. You don't you don't hit. You usually don't see the the ball and bat hit. It's the same way. You go whack you know, and you're already over. But what happened is that you've already seen uh like the whack you know on the last yes. draw. Sure. And so therefore you go whack and that's the punch. Now it depends on, on how on how much um you want to do and and how lightly the tap is or the punch is. You can go and you go pop, you know, where you yep. <laughs> where you're just, just <laughs> tapping and even the tap is you know is kind of like almost you, you never see it. It's always afterwards because it's the reaction. Otherwise it, all, all, all what you're doing is then pushing. You're not hitting, you're okay. pushing. Exactly. Yeah, that makes ah, a lot of sense. Okay, it does. It really does. And that and that's where you have analysis of action, and you have to study what actually happens. And it's not a, it's not a formula. You're understanding the principles. Mm. Nice. Mm. So who were your Ryan, teachers? Not like, something I ever thought about. No, definitely not. Like when you when you think about motion, you sort of take it for granted. You're watching this show and, you know, you don't know what goes into the preparation and, you know, yeah. lining up that punch shot. So that's fascinating. I just like, I just want to spin into, um, you know, who some of your your inspirations were. So when you're doing this type of work, you know, who really stuck out to you as, you know, some of your mentors or some of your inspirations for, uh, you know, your early animation and maybe even some of your later animation like today and some of your artwork that you do. Like who what are the names that uh, that stand out to you? Well, uh, uh, inspirations, I, I didn't, didn't try really to, to copy them. But again, it was I, I didn't know this, but but it, it was just a little later on that I knew about uh, Bill Titler. Oh, yeah. uh, Art Babbitt. Uh, there's Milt Call. Uh, Milt Call did uh, Sir Khan in, uh, you know, in uh, the Jungle Book. Jungle Book. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, Frank Thomas uh, and Ollie Johnson. They were they did uh, Captain Hook and Smee. Uh, I like the the more exuberant characters. You know, uh, mm-hmm. the 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 ones that were that not realistic. You know, I I've I, I've had my share of. Uh, of doing realistic characters, but, you know, I prefer, you know, uh, even the villains or the, I, I prefer very much so the eccentrics. Uh, when, in terms of comic book work, it was Wayne Boring 
Uh, oh, who, wow. Okay. Okay, you know that name? Absolutely. Certainly. Okay. I worked with him there at Tubby. And um, and I had I had st- I had studied his work as a young kid. I did I I did pe- pages and pages of Wayne Boring Superman stuff. <laughs> and so when I discovered that he was he, he was there, I mean I didn't know. I, I no one told me. I was I was in betweening some scenes. You know, we were drawing. You know, in the sort of the, the the you know the the minute drawings. Uh, and this was like in my first two weeks there. I'm I'm looking at the at the, at the drawings and I'm seeing on the folder who did the layouts and it said boring. And I went boring. <laughs> <that, laughs> so what I recognized was his pencil work. He has a sure. very, very distinctive way of laying a line on a page, okay? Now that goes mm-hmm. back to saying some artists, some cartoonists had a style and others it doesn't matter what it was. It would, they were hacks, but he had his own individual style of doing things. So I would, uh, I, I was looking at, I said, Oh, is this Wayne Boring? And he said, is this the, you know, Wayne Boring of so-and-so? And I went and, and I asked him because he had his office there, you know, uh, you know, in the, at the, at the studio. And I went and asked him, he said, yeah, I did uh, super. I said, wow. And so, what I came when I when I went home, I came back the next day with my drawings that I did when I was a, a seven, eight, nine, ten year old, <laughs> you know, emulating him, you know, and I showed him, you know, a couple of food pages of that. And he said, Yep, you got me there, Johnny Boy. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, was, so cool. <laughs> yeah, Johnny Boy. And then then six weeks later, I, I realized I found out he was leaving. And, the, and, and, the, and it was the last day. I said, my God, you know, I'm sorry that, you know, I, we only got a chance. Cause we'd see each other and he'd be calling me Johnny Boy and whatnot. It was an old, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, sailor. And he would just roll down across the, <laughs> he was a young, he was, he was very small. You know, and, 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 and even, you know, Popeye, uh, Johnny Gent, who was Popeye, was very small too. But anyway, I'm walking and he, he, the last day, he he uh, wiggles his finger at me and he says, "Come here into my office." And I said, "Okay." And he and he goes and he uh, he shuts the door and he's he's sitting at his he had his desk and there was a, an office blotter, you know, like you know one of those old fashioned blotters where you know sure. you spill ink and what have you. He lifts the blotter up and pulls out a drawing uh, a, a piece of paper it was you know a uh, uh, bristle board is like a three ply bristle board and he, and he and he presented it to me and it was a drawing of superman you know it says uh, for johnny boy and wayne boring and he says here you know you were the only person who didn't bother me about <laughs> about getting <laughs> <laughs> that's great and i've got that i've got that drawing you know uh, uh i've had that for the last 40 some odd year 45 years and that's 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 uh, uh that's framed and hanging here in my studio so but those are the guys who were my mentors because even though i didn't work with them you know uh i learned from them absolutely Certainly. great feedback awesome yeah now, now we did talk a little earlier about the, you know, the shift from the 2D animation to using computer-based models and and using computers to facilitate animation. Now, how has how have you adapted to the changes in the industry coming from, you know, the, you know, the the more manual 2D into the new world here? How has well, that I, uh, sh- shift been for you? Well, um, let's put it this way: uh, there are two ways of looking at it. What am I using computers now for? 
and that's my comic books. I'm <laughs> yes. doing. I I I, I scan my drawings into. I, I still draw on paper with pencil. I scan them, you know, into JPEGs. Uh, you know, uh, adjust the contrast to my liking. Then I put it into uh, into uh, Toon Boom Animation, which is a very old program right now. Oh yeah, I've, I've used Toon Boom actually. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, cool. Toon Boom Studio. Mine is from like ten, uh, from uh, ten years ago. I still use it, and I'm able mm-hmm. to output it as a as a PNG so that I can then uh, have a little sl- uh, smoother line uh, to it, you know. Uh, and it's and it's a, it's a, it's a PNG, and so therefore I can then import it into into um, uh, into Clip Studio Paint, and then ah, I can color it. I've so, often wondered about that program. Do you find that really good? Yep, I do all my lettering, I do my painting, I do I, I assembly into that. Okay, I don't draw on it. I, I still do. I hate Cintiqs. I hate those things because I don't like drawing on 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 uh, on uh, on glass. When I'm drawing, I'm not drawing with an underlight anymore. And so therefore, at least I don't have to stare into the screen. I don't like to do that. Now, I'll be 71 uh, ne- next month. And I just, you know, I've already had two cataracts. So, I, I you know, I'm getting, you know, I, I, I've had to deal with that. And so that many years ago, but still, I just don't like uh, the air, the glare into into my eyes. So therefore, I will just draw on my regular animation board, and I'll only use the light underlight if I really need it. Okay, uh, but okay. but that's how I that's what I'm using now. Back then, when when the computer animation totally took over, well, that threw me out into the street into the street because in the year of, you know in about 2000. Um, you know, I was working for um, Nest Animation. I'd been there for for 10 years, and um, that was the end of it. They were no longer doing 2D animation. They were doing computer animation. And basically, you know, I was already like 51. And so mm-hmm. they deemed all of us, you know, and the whole industry was they want the, they wanted the new people that were coming out of the schools that they had been developing you know, for, for 10 years all of the computer, uh, the all, the studios in Hollywood were were creating, you know, animation schools and creating computers and everything was all geared to getting young people in there. And they just threw out just hundreds and hundreds of us. And so therefore there was no work. Wow. So, so too, yeah. And you know what? It was, uh, for, for fans of cartoons and we'll get into this a little bit later when it comes to, you know, the seventies, eighties and the, you know, the Saturday morning cartoon boom and different things like that. But, uh, you know, when, when the shift came from, you know, standard 2d, uh, you know, animation to 3d, I mean, it's pretty jarring for longtime fans and I'm sure for animators as well. Like you said, you were put out on the street, you know, because of this technological shift. Yep. So, you know, it, it's a real shame that, that that happened. But, I mean, you know, there's definitely something to be said for a nice, slick 2D animation. And when you see that today, it's a real callback, and it really still draws my eye. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know your thoughts on 3D animation. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? You know, what are your thoughts about, you know, today's animation style? When you see it on the screen right now, you know, do it you looks, enjoy it? or? No, I don't. I don't because it's too it, – it feels too mechanical. I don't care what it is mm-hmm. there. I do. There is no warmth to it. 
Okay. Every, I think you're right on the money. Metallic, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, there's too much metallic sheen, even to the human the character. Yeah. It, it is, you know, once again, it, it, you're asking me my personal. Yes, you know? absolutely. Okay. And so sure. that's what I say. When, when you draw, when, when you have, uh, when you can see a hand, one hand doing everything, that's one thing. Okay. When you have maybe 50, maybe 10 people, you know, one person does the the eyes, the other one does hair, the other one does does upper upper torso, and the other one does uh you know the the, the lower torso, and you know you know that you cannot manip manipulate the characters because it, you're you have limitations as to what the computer program will allow you to do, and then there you also have the element that so much of what you see it, that is 2D is puppetry. It is Bingo. manipulation of mm -hmm. of of image of uh, of joints and what have you from the exterior. It is not from interior. And even then, a puppet, a hand puppet, can only do so much. You you know you you still not, do not have the fantasy and the capability of of an artist to say I'm I'm manipulating this drawing so that there is no way that for a, for a brief second. Anything, a brief a frame or maybe two frames, there's something that gives you a certain snap and pop that, 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 that something that a computer has to move from one point position to another. It's a vector. It, you know, it is programmed to do only certain things. Exactly. That's, that's true. Yeah. You don't, you, I, I don't think I've ever thought about the, the constraints and the limitations in, in computer animation until you mentioned that there. It's, there is just so much more you can do uh, with uh, doing it, you know, doing it yourself without the tools or without the without the not tools so much as the the leg up uh, or the the facilitation of computer uh, computer animation. I right. never thought yeah. of the limitations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here's the, here's the thing is that is that and and also also uh, first of all with 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 HD with with the high definition your eyes. You know, there is some there is a sharpness that you don't have in human in, in human experience. You know, in terms of your eyes, you know, mm -hmm. don't do not make the sharp. There's always a fuzz between imagery. You know, when, when you're looking around the cam, your your uh, your room, you're not seeing slot, no shape slot. You know, the, the harsh cuts of everything. Um, but when on a computer. It, with the imagery, everything is so distinct yes. that, you know, suddenly you have a, it, it's not, it, there isn't a, you can't even get to the point of saying, okay, well, you know, uh, it, it feels warm. It, it, it won't feel, it, it doesn't feel warm to me. Now, some people, you know, uh, will, will totally disagree with me. I'm only giving you my, my reaction to it. But I would say that the, what I have as a problem is, in the terms of the besides the design, the the animation is either it is you know using a um, you know uh, stylistically the they they will use um, motion capture. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In which what you're doing is that you know you're throwing that's it, it's already there's already the performance is already there. You might make adjust you may, you make some adjustments, but you cannot change that you know that much sure. okay it is not like rotoscope 
that some you know that, that that has been used in you know for at Disney where they would use the posing to give you a good idea of what was going on, but then you changed it all. You know, you could change it. You could just adjust the uh, everything. No, with with, uh, with 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 motion capture, you know, you have a performance, and you're going to follow that pretty much. Mm-hmm. Or you've got you've got uh, people who are trying to do it. You know, you're doing it with technically with animation, with just you know taking their uh, their their uh, uh, their model, you know, the 3D model, and then trying to make the character walk. Well, there's always a mechanicalness to it. There's a floatingness to it because sure. because motion is not is not exact. So you can have you know uh, like in, in animation, you sometimes a portion of a movement of a continuous movement might what might be on one one frame for 24 you know, 24 frames per second, not 30 or 60, but in, in say 24 frames. Then, uh, then it might be moving for like you know uh, a new drawing every every frame, and then it goes into two frames, and then maybe to three frames per drawing, and then it goes into mm-hmm. one. You have a variety of things that it's more stylized than trying to be natural. Yeah, I I I, I agree 100. Totally. There there is a big difference when you see a 3D animated character walk around, and like you said, I like what the way you said. Sometimes they look like they're floating; they're not part of the environment. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah, not a natural-ness to it. Yes, yes, it's mm-hmm. it's not natural. And 2D animation, you know, I know it was done in layers and transparencies and different things like that, but the characters felt like they were in the frame, that they belonged in their environment. And I think some of the, you know, basic 3D animation that we see today really misses that point. There's not a genuine, like you say, warmth to mm-hmm. the product. And yeah. and that that's one of the big lived things. In. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. There's a shine or a sheen to the product that shouldn't be there. Like, you know, we want the grittiness. We want to see like some some grit on the film reel, you know what I mean? It <laughs> it makes you feel it's comfort food, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's what we grew up with and it felt natural. But some of the yep. stuff just seems over polished, over slick, and it does take sanitized, away. Sanitized, yeah. Yeah, sanitized is a great word. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got a good question for you, John. So what okay. I want to talk about uh, this is with Nelvana, Nelvana Entertainment, of course, yep. and this was a a very famous and I will say infamous project as well from <laughs> November seventeenth, nineteen seventy eight. This was the Star Wars Holiday Special, yes. and you know it was from Twentieth Century Fox and Nelvana Entertainment. I just wanted to just ask you a question about you know discuss your participation in the series and more specifically, you know, did you know about the buzz? We'll start with this. Did you know about the buzz about Star Wars before its release? Like you know, what was the vibe and you know feeling about Star Wars the product? when you got invited to do this, you know, this particular job? Well, um, I was at, uh, um, I had, I had been at Nelvana for a brief period of time prior to the release of Star Wars. So I, 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 I left Nelvana and then went to, uh, to Patty Freeling where I'd been hired by Frizz Freeling to animate. Yep. And mm-hmm. so I was working there at the studio and uh, it was during that time period where, when the you know Star uh, the the uh, the first episode of Star Wars, and it was call, only called Star Wars then. There was no second, you know, there was no. It was it was an episode four. It was I just still call Star it Wars. just Star Wars. There was no was, New Hope. No, <laughs> no, it was there was it was just Star Wars. Okay, 
And so therefore, uh, I went my my first my first experience was sitting. Uh, it was uh, we uh, there were three of us, three, three young animators. And uh, we said, oh, well, let's go see what let's check this thing out. And, you know what? It's kind of like Buck Rogers. I said, OK, I like that Buck Rogers because <laughs> I watched it on, on TV at, you know, during, a, a, as a kid. You know, ten years earlier, and you know, in in, in New York and, and on the TV stations, and so anyway, so we go we go in there, and the only the only seats were in the 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 first and second rows of the theater, and uh, you know, this oh, is wow. in Los Angeles, and like uh, mm. so anyway, my impression of Star Wars is from <laughs> is sitting on this you know this 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 uh, this uh, forty by 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 30 foot high screen and that's how i saw you know <laughs> the, uh, the uh the 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 opening shots of uh, of wow. the of the ships coming over overhead <laughs> you know so what was your opinion of the movie did you like it oh it was fun you know i because yeah. well immediately i you know as soon as i saw the opening crawl i said flash garden conquers the universe <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> oh yeah definitely listen uh, a lot of what's in Star Wars is uh, is not original at all. Oh, we'll oh, say yeah, that's yeah, no yeah, secret. No, no, totally. No. I, listen. I mean, uh, uh, actually, uh, what's his name? Uh, um, uh, Lucas is only a few years older than I am. My generation. You know. I mean, mm-hmm. we're all looked at the same thing. Yeah. He so, was anyway. heavily he was heavily inspired by Flash. Oh Batman, yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah. yeah those oh, serials. Hundred yeah. percent. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everything is there. Um, you know the the. Using the, um, it's interesting. The uh, so anyway, the, the I I was very aware of that, you know, at mm-hmm. at, at uh, uh, of of Star Wars. I then was after the during the summer of that summer, I was I was uh, invited to to you know to become part of the staff over at Nelvana again, and so they hired me, you know, and they brought me over. You know, with the work permit and again and uh, and all of that, and uh, for you know for just you know to be a, to get a permanent status there, and uh, so I was I was already at Nelvana, knowing about uh, the original Star Wars. Didn't know anything about you know this holiday special thing until until Patrick and you know and Clive Smith, the uh, two of the owners, uh, would say, okay, well we're going to do this, so. So what was the original pitch? Do you remember anything about, you know, what the, the gist of what you guys had to do, what you had to accomplish? No, because well, actually, no, no, no. The difference was that uh, uh, Michael Hirsch, my understanding is that he was he was already at when he was in in Hollywood and had contacted me to come back to come back to Nelvana. He had been uh, been showing a cosmic Christmas to you know, uh, at uh, at uh, at the, at the various areas of the computer, uh, the, uh, the studios there to show what we're doing, because that because because it was being uh, being syndicated by uh, what is it? Um, geez, what is the name of this? Uh, the um, anyway, it was it was syndication, and um, one of his friends was one of the people who was with uh, trying to pitch the idea of of. Of uh, of getting a an independent studio to do uh, this animated segment for the holiday special. The the uh, I guess the 20th Century Fox wanted to have one of the Hollywood studios to do it, and um, Michael Michael's uh, friend was saying, well, we should have an independent one. And so 
uh, um, Lucas was very much pro independent studios. Nice. So he got to mm-hmm. see uh, the holidays, uh, the, uh, the um, a cosmic Christmas and saw, you know, how we were handling things such as uh, the spacemen. Right. You know, the three. Okay. So I, I had I had animated those spacemen and I designed how they were to movement, which was in cross dissolves. So it was very different. And so therefore, uh, Spielberg, or rather, uh, Lucas said, uh, let's hire these guys. And that's how how the offer came to them to do it based wow, on that's, that's a cool. cosmic Christmas. Yeah. So for so for folks who don't know, there was a right after the release of Star Wars, uh, a little while later, they released a holiday special. So it was a I would like to say two hours, but it, it tends to depending on what version of you're watching. Sometimes <laughs> it, might, it might feel like four hours, depending yeah. on uh, <laughs> what it is. Yeah, it was a year and a half after that because we didn't animate yeah. we didn't animate uh, the, uh, the the special, the uh, the animated version until 78. And so, oh, therefore, gotcha. it was a year and a half. It was in like it was November of so and so of uh, seventy eight that you know. So we had, we 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 did uh, a Devil and Daniel Mouse in in seven in uh, seventy seven seventy eight. Then did the Star. Then we did the uh, the the Boba Fett film uh, uh, segment mm-hmm. from uh, for the holiday special in May and June July of. Uh, of uh, 78 and and that's the big thing because i think uh this thing holds a special place in you know star wars fans heart because it, it's actually the first appearance of boba fett before mm-hmm. empire strikes back you guys actually put him on screen for the first time so you guys your team was responsible for drawing the first physical image of boba fett right i mean <laughs> how cool is that <laughs> yeah. I, I, what i what I'd like to know, I'd like to li- dig a little bit deeper on this. Like, were you given any character sheets to go by, you know, any concepts or uh, art that you had to go by? Or did you guys, like, improvise some items? Like, like what, what was the what specs were you given to, to do this character? Okay, uh, there, there were two things. One is they definitely, uh, um, Lucas definitely wanted um, the design of the entire uh, animated segment to be like that of Mobius in yes. uh, Heavy Metal. Okay. Okay, wow. including the co- uh, color schemes, all of that sort of thing. So uh, that was that was a, a, a given. That was the direction. Then we were given uh, the um, uh, a black and white uh, video of uh, of uh, the stormtrooper that was sort of you know that was the the uh, the the first the white Boba Fett segment. Yes. You, you'll 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 mm-hmm. notice that. You know, it's all just in, in he's got he's got his his gun and he's got the helmet and he's got the the cape and what have you the doodads and whatnot. It was a mock up. It was a you know it, it was a it was a white uh a white uh, um uh, armor and that was a black okay. and white. That, and those were the two things that we got. So and did they so, give you any like character references like how he no, had to act, how he had to no, move, anything? No, 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 nothing like that. That's all me. Wow. Uh, oh nice. wow. Yeah, that, that, that's that's all me. I I, I, pay, I let me just get to the, that. What we what what happened to the Frank Disson then took that. He was a designer at Novana, and he did the design of uh, of Boba Fett off of though that that uh, model sheet, rather not not model sheet, but the uh, the uh, the specs about Mobius and the video camp. So he did a very, he did he did you know um, two two or three sheets uh, of just just a, a basic basic um, uh, 
profile three quarter rear and 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 straight on shot and that was what i got because it was my job to do to animate him and so i got mm-hmm. all of those drawings and I, I i did all that and then what i did was i then took that and interpreted through my pencil to give it a more of a three-dimensional rotation it it was very flat to begin with but you know, you know, you had to you have to rotate the character. So I just sure. gave it some more, a bit more form, and then also how the character moved and how it was acting, how the character acting. So I took a basic Clint Eastwood, you know, man with no name aspect mm-hmm. gotcha. from from you know from uh, uh, from the '60s, and I just said he's a gunfighter. You know, he's uh, he might be working his hands. As with his gloves, maybe every now and then getting his gun gun hand ready. Oh, that's more like Jack pa- Jack Palance in uh, in uh, Shane. These are all movie <laughs> ref- references, yes, which were very, very strong cool back then. Very very cool. So yeah, like there, there's a there's a couple character elements that differ from the the one who ended up on like the actual live action screen. So you know the character was given almost like a tuning fork weapon, and yeah. he he was riding a lizard. Was there any yeah, yeah. where where did where did those elements come from? Well, we we had the lizard you know as an image, and he was riding on it. Uh, we kept them on it, it was as a staging element. There is one point where. In the in the actual script, which was uh, uh, Lucas, you know, it was in charge of of that script. We got it from him, mm-hmm. and so there was a where he just kind of punches the uh, Boba Fett uh, punches the uh, uh, the lizard in the nose, you know, <laughs> but it, you know with his <laughs> with his fist, and you know when he says uh, all they ever do is eat. But what 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 I said was okay, let's change it since. since we weren't getting him down off off the mountain off off the mount. He had he was still up on the in the saddle. So I just was playing around with the tuning fork, uh, the rifle, and just had him whack with that like a baseball bat to get him to you know, settle down. So, <laughs> I don't love it. so you know, so but we had that we you see we we had that um, that ability to to uh, you know to develop the characters because it was you know there were no expectations. You know, wow. we, we were doing that. We had freedom. And also there was no back and forth. You know, basically, I would do the sheet. I would I would do the I think I think the animation lasted. I actually the full animation of all the, the entire 11 minute or nine minutes of 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 of, uh, of that that whole middle animation segment. I think we were in maybe in production for animation. And in betweening for about six weeks, so we were cranking that out, okay. you know. So we were doing. There, there was no, you know, and and it was all. Uh, I never saw any pencil tests. In no. other words, no, 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 anything that you see, that's all. That's that's. If there was any change, there might have been maybe one or two things. I don't. I don't remember seeing any pencil tests. I'd only see it in color. Okay. Oh, really wow. cool. So did you know? Did you know at the time that uh, you know that the character of Boba Fett was going to become such a phenomenon? I mean, he is definitely, you know, when you when you talk about like popular characters in the Star Wars universe, I mean, Boba Fett, this guy that you drew, he's a fan favorite. Yeah, he was going to explode in popularity with his own books, action figures, everything. Did you know at the time that you know he was going to take off so big? Well, I to me, I mean, I had a gut re- a gut feeling that he would because. 
he had all of the elements. I mean, he was the rocketeer. Before you had rocketeer, you had rocket man. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you know, the nineteen uh, the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties serials, and so that's why I look and I said he's a he's a rocket man. You know that it's he he you don't see his face, so therefore I had no facial expressions except for the tilt of the head, how the visor would tilt down and up, giving him expressions, tilt it to the side, give it give give a bit more a bit more. Uh, elements of like if he's if he's frowning he's looking down if he's if he's a little surprised he's looking up you know if he's quizzical mm-hmm. he might be turning you know to to arch an eyebrow you just you tilt the head you know one side is higher than than the other there were all those elements that I had to play in but with the um, with with just the idea of what he was you only you didn't have that at all in any of the animated films you know in in the mid 70s Sure. So you had a ca- you had cool. somewhere where you know hitting somebody with a with a with a, hitting hitting a beast of any kind with uh you know with your with your rifle I mean hey you know that's badass so you know and so I, I'm what uh, let's see how old am I at the time I'm 28 when I do th- did that I've been I've mm-hmm. only I'd only been animating as professionally for for about three years. I mean, from from beginning to end, my my, my I had, had started as an in betweener at Tubby the Tuba in uh, 1975 through uh, 76, and then through 76, I was um, I was on at uh, on Raggedy Ann and Andy, a Richard Williams film in a feature in uh, in in New York. Then I went to Nelvana, you know, and then and, and then uh, um, what's his name? Um, to Patty Freeling, and then back to Nilvana. Mm-hmm. So, like three years. So, from start wow. from entry into that into uh, Star Wars uh, time, you know, uh, holiday special. It's three years of experience, but every day. Wow. Sure. Very sure. cool. And, and the the holiday special. I mean, usually the only good things I hear people say about it are this Boba Fett cartoon. Uh, One hundred percent. It's pretty notorious for being something that. Uh, Mr. Lucas tried to remove from circulation and uh, led to like tape traders. It just became like a legendary tape trading thing before the days of YouTube, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, did you know at the time that this project, like the big guy, didn't wasn't a fan of this project? And uh, well, what was the feedback to the teams working on the show? Well, we we all we didn't know anything about this the, the TV show. You know, okay. we oh, had gotcha. nothing to do with it. I was just as shocked as everybody else opening, you know, turning on the on the, the tube <laughs> at, that November. <laughs> and I was saying, what is this? You know, I kind of thought it might have been an adventure and whatnot. I, I had no I, I had no script other than the animation script. So gotcha. when I see this, this is a musical. I'm thinking, oh, my Lord, I was worried <laughs> that nobody would stay around to see the cartoon. <laughs> the cartoon was halfway through. Sure. So and 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 but I'll tell you this way this much I kept my I kept my rough drawings my, all my initial drawings I had uh because wow. of the um you know because they were the kind of drawings that uh, would be thrown away. Oh, so you have all that? You actually yeah. have Oh, John. That's that amazing. is incredible. Yeah. You go online and uh you can see my um uh, again on my on my uh, my blog 
uh, you'll see a whole whack of anim of of the uh, uh, those are the first rough sketches. Those are the initial gesture drawings, and they're all there. Um, I, I did a video on YouTube that I that I do about them. You know, so I have that using the Star Wars, and then also the uh, the Flash Gordon music. <laughs> compare, you know, combining them. So I do, I do. It's like a ten minute, a nine minute uh, cartoon or three minute video I have on my channel with showing a, a lot of the drawings, and then also on my uh, last year's Kickstarter that I did with my portfolio rough sketch. I I. You know, uh, I printed out and uh, published some of those drawings in as part of my portfolio. So oh, very, very cool. Very cool. Absolutely. But I, I, as I said, yes, I I felt that I I you don't carry those drawings around for 45 years from uh, from one one end of the continent to the other if you don't like them. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely>. <laughs> <laughs> so. So you said you were, you know, you were shocked to see that the show was what it was, not, you know, outside of the animation, of course. Yeah. Uh, did did you did you make it all the way through, or have you watched it since? And uh, do you have any I, sort of I, opinion I, on the rest of it? <laughs> no, I. Well, listen, I just, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I much prefer Jefferson Airplane, not Jefferson Star. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was never really a Diane Carroll fan in the for music. <laughs> Um, that's hilarious you know i i just uh that's just the way it is uh i sure. have seen i've seen the cartoon you know several times when it was you know uh, it, it's been up on youtube i think i've got a copy of it somebody gave me a bootleg copy of the cartoon itself so i have a sure. CD of that uh, but basically i'm very glad that people have taken the character to heart because it, it represents a certain kind, an element of raw entertainment as a character, as a personality that you don't see. It's he's not, you know, he he is the same way. He's an accident of circumstance as a character is a cartoon, not so much the live action because the live action is based on the cartoon. The same mm -hmm. way, the cartoon is the same accident the way. Bugs Bunny is. Yeah. You don't, okay. you know, a lot of these cartoon characters of the 30s and 40s developed over time, and but they had a certain spark to them. They weren't manipulated. They weren't created uh, through committee. They just happened. Sure. Because one particular director or some artist gave something to that character. Absolutely. So, That's the trick cool. right there. Mm hmm. So. I want to let's let's shift gears here now. I want to tell you about a time when uh, I think it was early early 80s. I go to an arcade and I mm. walk in and mm. instead of seeing my regular Pac-Man and you know our, our Space Invaders and all that stuff, I look over to the right and I see something called Dragon's Lair. And John, yeah. this thing absolutely blew my mind. It actually it cost totally. 50 cents. It was double the price of a standard <laughs> yeah. uh, of a standard video game at the time. Yeah. It was literally a cartoon on a video game, and that was such a jarring difference and a shock to you know someone who attended, you know, who visited arcades often, and mm -hmm. to see something of this quality that you could play blew me away. Now, of course, you know, Dragon's Lair was through uh, you know Don Bluth and the, the Bluth Group and all that type of stuff. Talk to me about how you got involved 
with animating Dragon's Lair or, you know, even even getting in with, uh, you know, the, the Bluth group. How, walk me through that. Well, what happened was that um, I, I had decided to leave Nelvana because they were, you know, they weren't doing anything original anymore. They were doing they were doing uh, work for hire and they were they were, you know, we, we I had done a number of specials with them after after uh, uh, Rock and Roll. Yes, uh, was was done. And I I did uh, strawberry shortcakes and for selfie elf and did some some work with uh, in, in the, the inspector gadget. But the thing about it is that they were just they were doing they weren't doing anything original. And I just I just couldn't see, you know, uh, staying in, in that way. I was just looking for something else. And, you know, the industry, I tried to stay in Canada, but there was nothing going on. There. Gotcha. So it you was, had to you, you had know, to move shop. Yeah, I, I really had to do that. I mean, the the chances are I would have had to if I stayed at Nel at Nelvana, I know that they wanted me to, to wanted to send me over to Korea, and I just didn't want to do that to to oversee stuff like that. Mm. So uh, I so what I said was you know I said okay well let me start seeing what's happening back in in the states. At that time, I sent my portfolio to. Uh, I, I can't. I hadn't contacted the. Uh, I hadn't gotten my uh, uh, samples yet. Uh, I sent uh, a, a to. Uh, this is all within a, within a couple of months of each other, right? Um, one of the one of one of the one of the guys in um, at uh, at uh, at Nelvana, Chuck Gamage, was a, was was friends with Jerry Reese and, and Brad Bird. And they, Brad Bird and Jerry Reese, were out in, in San Rafael, California, and they were trying to to develop uh, Will Eisner's spirit as a cartoon, as an animated oh, feature. Really? Okay. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. very cool. Oh, yeah. What happened? Oh, yeah. to know about that. Oh yeah. Uh, so I, uh, what I did was I said, okay, I spent some time animating a scene of uh, of. Um, of uh, the spirit, you know, just kind of uh, lifting his hat and, you know, the, the back of his head, just giving some attitude and, you know, and, and what have you. And uh, I just uh, sent it off to them and uh, they came back and uh, they invited me to say, well, OK, uh, you know, why don't you um, why don't you, see, you know, you know, see us and and, uh, you know, if you ever get a chance to get you know, come in California. Uh, you, uh, we'll, you know, we'll have a, have a meeting with you. But if you can get samples of rock and roll with you, when, then we can see what your animation is like, you know, actually on the big screen. So by that time, I had gotten my samples from from rock and roll and Easter Fever that I had directed. So I got all of that together. And I guess uh, there's about like seven minutes of of animation. And um, and so. You know, we went for a, a visit. We visited uh, my wife and I visited her brother and 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 uh, her sister-in-law in uh, in uh, in California in in San Francisco. And we visited San Rafael. And I was there. We went into and and had already set up a meeting with them. And um, they said, yeah, uh, they, they saw the video and everything. And he said, okay. He said, if uh, we could get this off the ground, you know, we want you to be on on the show on, on the film I said okay well good well you know uh, I wasn't going to wait for anything to happen I then took that reel and then I I then contacted I knew about the video games 
you know, that were being produced over at um, at Bluths, and so I sent them a reel and uh, with the resume, and they they you know, two weeks later I I got a call and uh, and an official letter and saying that we wanted to hire you on, and that's that's how I got there. Very cool. So for the for folks who don't know, and if and shame on you, number one, if you don't know what Dragon's Lair is, but it debuted <laughs> in 1983, and it was from Cinema um, Cinematronics Video Games, and it was also followed by another cinematic video game, Space Ace, in April of 1983. 1983, I should say. So when you're talking, it was the debut of laser disc video game technology, and that had not been seen up until now. So this thing is just like over the top successful so Mm -hmm. you know you 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 talk about an explosion in the arcades that this was this was something like a fanboy dream you never thought you'd ever see that technology and be able to manipulate it and play it Mm -hmm. go ahead chris yeah they they were both cutting edge technologies here and did you know that the uh, game was going to be like quite as groundbreaking i mean you tell anybody anybody of our vintage i suppose about dragon's lair and their eyes light up they know they know that feeling that uh, that chris just explained here where you walk into the arcade and you see pixels on one screen and you see a full-blown gorgeous cartoon on another uh, yeah, did, did well, you know at the time it was going to be that you know that big of a movement in the uh, in the industry well it, it's 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 the kind of thing first of all that was the only job that that, <laughs> that was one of the, the 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 only real things happening you know that needed someone with my experience mm-hmm. okay and because um, because uh, the, the Bluth Studios, you know, there were still very young animators. Uh, and I had already like when I now was like eight years of by that time it was about eight years of experience working on feature films and directing on, on TV specials. So I was hired on to basically, uh, you know, to have my own unit there and to work on stuff. Um so that was the, that was the premise. That was the reason that I was there. And and uh, I thought, OK, well, this is really, you know, whether it happened, whether it's going to work or not. I thought this was this was something that was new. And so whether it was an attempt or not, you know, whether it was successful or not, it wasn't matter to me. You know, it was the fact <laughs> that it was going. I was it was it was something new. And the thing about it is that it all made sense that, you know, uh, you know, doing connections and say, OK, if you do this and you connect it that way, if you didn't, you you came up. It, it, it's very pretty basic coding, a very basic, uh, you know, uh, uh, a way of of working. They were all very. And but to do it right, you had to understand exposure sheets, the animation wise, because you had to time and choreograph your animation. Gotcha. You know, so, within like, within within the scene, because you either do one or two ways. One, you can get the character can get hit, or it didn't get hit, or something. Like I did, I, you know, in some of the uh, later, you know, like in the second um, the second uh, uh, Dragon Slayer, uh, I, I I worked on uh, the Jabby, Jabberwocky sequence. Oh. Where where the you know the monster is, is yeah. Dirk, Dirk is dressed in his pinafore and he's riding on 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 on, on, on those uh, cards and he's being chased by uh, by the, uh, the Jabberwocky. Well, you know you have to jump, <laughs> leap, you know, within a frame. You have to either make it or not. You know, you, you have to play around with the timing and choreograph so that it's there. That it's that you know, and and so you have to time it, and so it looks right and feels right. 
when you when, when you're playing the game. And but they were all very short scenes. Uh, my thing was was more death scenes. You know, so if you got if you if you if you got hit, you know, it, it was probably <laughs> he shattered like, into like a skeleton. <laughs> skeleton. Yep. <laughs> John, John, I think uh, I think you owe me quarters because I think I spent a lot of money seeing that death screen in front of me. <laughs> ah, well, you know what? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, you'll have to take it up with uh, Cinematronics or a Blue because I never saw any of that money. Oh no, disaster! <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. What else you got for him? Uh, now, well, uh, if you were to compare both those games, Dragon's Lair or Space Ace, which would you uh, say was your favorite uh, to work on, to maybe play, uh, to just see? Um, hmm. Because they're not films. Mm-hmm. They're not really. I mean, they, yeah, they are. They can be filmed. But the idea is um, I, I, I did it purely as, as like they're all little exercise things. You know, there's no character gotcha. involved. Sure. So I don't look at them in the same way that you would. You know, they are games. They are. I mean, if you look at, if you go from one to another, you know, if you just just run the film, um, there's no breath. There, it's not an animated film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a game. And yeah, that's certainly. It. So when when you're doing this, are you breaking it down? So obviously it's like a choose your own adventure. Like the entire aspect of the Laserdisc game is that you had to pick a certain direction to go and match it up with certain timing. And you would, you know, you'd get your result. It would either be death or the game would continue. So, you know, how was that stage? Like, like, did you have to do like a full map of, you know, you know, the different results or consequences or how do you flow it? As far as I know, I mean, what, what, what I would get is from, I would get a section, you know, like a couple of scenes from yeah. from Don, and he'd say, "Okay, here's your exposure sheet, and uh, this is the time that you have all this to happen in." And so he'd, he'd give me maybe a beginning and a middle uh, uh, storyboard panel that was blown up, and I would go and lay it out and, and do all the stuff within the time frame allowed, and then uh, and then it was all put together. You know, in as they after they shot all the pencil tests, okay, and they can make sure it all worked. Well, we would shoot our own pencil tests. I would rough out everything and shoot it so that we can look and see it. Right. And then mm-hmm. I would, and then I would, I would, I would, I would uh, do the, the the solid drawings, you know. Um, and then it would go to clean up and in between, and then they would do a pencil test to see how it all worked out. Because what happens is is that you where where the control comes is is you as a uh, as the player you had to shift you had to shift your your lever in the right direction or press the right thing or maybe you know uh, use the, the sword button or what have you or, or the blaster depending upon what you you chose and so therefore you had to make the shift you made you were the one in control of what happened mm-hmm. and, very cool that was super cool OK, so we you know, we just did that. And then, you know, so the algorithms took over from there. Very Certainly. nice. Very Certainly. nice. Now, a little bit about the uh, Bluth style. You know, like each studio has their own house style. You know, Hanna-Barbera, you have Scooby-Doo. Uh, Bluth has that signature like secret of Nim look to their characters and mood. Uh, what would you say would be your preferred style of animation from, you know, the late 70s into the into the 80s? Uh, 70s. I actually I prefer rock and roll. Yes. <laughs> well, I can't wait to touch on that. We're going to get there. There's a reason why I liked it, too. Yeah, well, you see, that that's the thing. I was a bit more, I, 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 my stuff was a bit more gritty. 
um, and a but more a bit more um, in many ways the, the the description that I that I got and 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 this is you know once again it's, um, I, I I left Bluth because you know I just uh, there the the studio went into bankruptcy you know oh. six months after we arrived. <laughs> So and I was, was looking. Was that because of rock and roll? No, no. I'm sorry. Ta- I'm taking. Oh, Bluth. I'm, 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 oh, Bluth. Okay, gotcha. So okay, with Bluth. Yeah. With Bluth. Yep. Bluth went into bankruptcy because of the financial things between Cinematronics and what was wow. happening to Ooh. the monies between the two. Okay, so that's how my understanding is. All I know is that about six months or so after we arrived, with we had taken my wife and I had, had, had moved lock, stock, and barrel from Toronto to uh to los angeles and uh, and suddenly we're out of work so wow. you know mm. so i'm going through you know saying okay and i'm trying to get everything i can and so i i, I knew some people you know you know at the stu- you know in the various you know studios and i wound up over working on on uh on on, on turbo team yes. <laughs> out there <laughs> but anyway um the thing is is that um I did come back to Bluth. I was asked to come back to Bluth to work on American Tale. Oh, cool. okay. Okay. So, but the problem is that it was that he was doing freelance, and you know, okay, well, Bluth it was very, very, very tough on getting stuff specific. But there was, I couldn't make any money, you know, on freelance work. I mean, you just can't. You know, her footage, it was impossible to make my rent, and okay. also I didn't, you know, at, at that point. He want he he wanted me to to change my style to fit in with the over exaggeration that he would do mouth wise and, and banging you know doing all kinds of stuff. His style was very dim, dim uh, very different from mine. He said my animation was too lyrical. So oh. I said okay, mm. yeah, okay. <laughs> what does what does lyrical mean? Well, <laughs> lyrical just means you know. There's too much finesse to it. Oh, gotcha. Okay. You know, you know, there's musical aspects to it because there was a rhythm to what I did. You gotcha. know, I go back to what I was talking about with, with your, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with how you have different, uh, you know, theories of, of music and whatnot. So, my character, if you go to rock and roll, you'll see how different Boba, uh, rather, um, uh, Mylar, the the club owner, works, uh, moves versus Quad Hole, the police chief, and then Cindy Schlepper. There are three different characters, and I did all the animation for all three of those characters, and they all had different rhythms. Very cool. Okay. You're you're exactly yeah. right. They they definitely like everybody definitely had their own signature move. I will, yeah, 100% agree with you. Okay, so I so I but 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 I'm I'm working that way, and, and there's a lot of finesse that went into it in terms of how I would make it work. I didn't bang it around a lot. I mean, it was just like there was certain things that I would do, and that just didn't jive in with what he wanted to do. So I mean, that he was the director, and he had every right. But by that time, you know, I just said I can't. I can't do that. I can't change on a dime like that. And make any sure. money. Yeah, so for sure. I left and I went to filmation. Very and cool. And and Shearer there. One so, thing I did want to pick up on, you did mention Turbo Teen. Now, yes. for folks who don't know what Turbo Teen is, so Turbo Teen ran from 1984 to 1985 and was part of the Saturday morning cartoon block on ABC. Not now, 85. It was, it was 80, 84 and 85. Not 84, 
Yeah, eight, no, 80. Oh, did I say 94? I meant 80, 84, 85. And yeah. it was it was on the ABC Saturday morning cartoon block. Now, one of the rare curiosities about this show right now today, if you tried to find episodes of Turbo Teen, good luck to you, because this thing has disappeared from planet Earth. There's a couple, you know, bootleg videos yeah. floating around. It went 13 episodes only. And it, yeah. all it was was about a guy who had an accident and now he can convert himself into a, you know, red sports car. Yeah. So it was basically, <laughs> you know, the Michael Knight, you know, Knight Rider deal done with like a, a kid flair with like a Scooby-Doo element where he solved mysteries. Mm-hmm. Now. Like I said, this thing has become like the uh, the Invisible Man, and people talk about it like almost in whispers, like it's this internet secret that this thing even existed because it's so rare. But mm-hmm. just talk about it, John. Like, what was your role in animating this series, and you know, what do you remember? Anything that you could give the internet about Turbo Team well, around the time? Okay, well, here's here's the thing: is that it, it was bizarre, uh, a bizarre idea back then too. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I, I don't do not like drawing cars, so. I, it was the job that I could get, and uh, I did the best I could with the characters, um, learning to draw cars and dealing. You know, I was doing layouts yeah. because all the stuff was okay. being was done overseas, animation wise. Oh, really? Yeah, they were. Ah, they, they, gotcha. they, we weren't doing that. They, they were doing. They were being done overseas. Huh. Interesting. And, uh, yeah. Um, and so. But the, the the big joke in my mind with the transformations, because I never saw any pencil tests, but but you know every now and then I would say, okay, how, when this guy turns into it, oh, where is his stick shift? <laughs> <laughs> I think I know. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's hilarious. Oh boy. <laughs> you don't have to cut that out, will you? Oh no! No, no, we'll, we'll hold on to that. Our audience would definitely appreciate that. Trust me, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, Chris, do you want to hit him with some He-Man and She-Ra? I know our fans are digging that the most. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, one of the uh, most highly revered and remembered series uh, by toy company Mattel and Filmation Studios. In uh, September '83, was Masters of the Universe, and two seasons containing 65 episodes. And of course, we had the. Uh, Famous female-oriented spin-off, She-Ra, Princess of Power, in 1985, lasted two seasons and 95 episodes, which, I mean, that's that's a lot of episodes. Uh, <laughs> now, how did you how did you get involved with uh, with that? And, um, uh, you know, this might be an obvious question, uh, but it's like a chicken and the egg thing when I think of some of these cartoons that, that have the, the toy uh, element to them. Like, were the toys first? Was the cartoon first? Which fed the other? Hmm. Well, my understanding, because I came in uh, in uh, see, I came in to work on 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 in Shira. Uh, originally, what it was I was looking, I was I was uh, I, I was looking to uh, um, to to leave. Oh yes, okay. I had left I had left um, Bluth and picked up some work from um, at. Uh, what was the name of the, the studio? Oh, oh, geez. Rick Reinerts. And we were doing some, mm-hmm. some afternoon specials. So I worked on, on an afternoon special with him. And so that was good. And then I said, okay, I need, I needed to keep on, you know, moving forward. And so the only place that was, uh, was hiring was uh, basically um, a, a filmation. And I knew one guy there, but I decided, okay, let me just go see what I've got. I've got my reel. I've got all this experience. Let's see what uh, if there's a room, there's a place for me. So um, 
I showed them, I went and spoke to, uh, met with uh, Hal Sutherland, and uh, he was in charge of animation. And uh, he immediately saw my reel and said, okay, I'm hiring you now. Because um, they, they, they wanted to do a, a, a feature unit at Filmation. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was hired for. But during the period of time until that could start up, I had to do, I, I, I wound up working on, uh, you know, uh, on Shira and a lot of the, uh, uh, and, and some of the He-Man shows. And so that's how I got involved with He-Man. Um, there was a thing where uh, we had to do, everybody had to do a, um, a, a test to be, you know, to, to be looked at. And so, um, you know, there was a little bit of, of scuffling around because some of the directors didn't like the fact that I got hired on without doing the, the He-Man test. So <laughs> the He-Man <laughs> test. What is the He-Man test? Yeah, the He-Man test was, was a, 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 a having to do a, a, to do all the posing and uh, you know of, of He-Man running and then turning and swinging his sword. So that's like a four foot okay. scene, you know, and uh, and I, you know, I, I did that, had to do that in one day. And so, wow. you know, so wow. uh, I was hired, but they still say, well, you have to do this because everybody has to do it. It's a union shop. So therefore, everybody has to do the test <laughs> to work. Gotcha. on. It. So I went and I did that. And so I, I saw it and that was, and, and everybody said, okay, fine. You're hired. You know, can I, that can was I after one question on rule, that, John? working on filmation, working, working at all these various things. Can I ask one question about the animation of He-Man? Yes. Uh, you know, when you talked about, you know, his running and his movements and all that stuff, I always thought as a kid, just looking at it, I mean, it was so slick and, you know, some of the movements, especially when he, you know, transforms and different things like that. It looked like rotoscoping. Was there any rotoscoping involved there? Or was that just I, pure off the, off the cuff? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure they did a certain amount of rotoscoping because a lot of that they did stock because, gotcha. uh, because mm-hmm. the reason that it, um, um, one of the things that everybody who has worked for that I know of that worked for Filmation for Lou Scheimer really respected him because he he cared about the people. Everything, all of the Filmation shows were made totally in the U.S. under one roof. Gotcha. So at one point, mm, okay. you know, all of those shows, there would be Hanna Barbera was shipping out, the Patty Freeling was shipping out, uh, Marvel was shipping out. Uh, I, you know, Disney was was small enough that they, they didn't have to do that. But to do 65 to do, uh, you know, a 65 uh, half hour shows for to do. That's like five shows a week for 13 week in a syndication run. And that's why there were so many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's why they did it. To, in order to do that, you had to crank out that stuff. There were about like 400 people under one roof there. <laughs> oh, my wow. God. Yes. Wow. So yeah. did you each Boy. get like a segment, like a piece that you had to complete? Uh, yeah. yeah you, you'd pick up you'd pick up maybe about – you'd pick up a, a week's work. You know, you'd, you'd do about you'd, – you'd have to do a minimum of about 60 feet to 70 feet a week, which is, you know, wow. in a neighborhood of about 45 seconds. But you had <laughs> really? Come, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that the, the you have a combination of uh, uh, let's see here it was but what you what you got was a combination of new animation, uh, easy footage and stock 
Yes. And what they did was they used stock of scenes that had been created. And they had all of that stuff. There's a the library of that you could use so that you, you know, you could number and make use of the stuff and then maybe adjust it and do things with it, you know, to 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 adjust for your your scene and what have you. Um, but the thing about it is that that way you can change, you could make quotas. People would be able to produce the work. You know, because it was a union shop that set, that everybody got benefits. Everybody got ta- Everybody got your 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 journeyman salary, or maybe if you got extra footage, you got bonus on top of that. But it was it was all medical. It had everything. You were you were you know it was a job, and and to provide people work on you know at least you know for most of the year, you know to be able to do that and and be within a budget you had to make use of reuse and a library. So uh, that so a lot of that, what they do, they would put money into certain scenes that were going to be used over and over again. But, you know, uh, it wasn't like it was the first time that you were just, you know, just doing a hell drawing or whatnot. You know, after 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 a certain amount of time, it pays for itself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Because if you got a bunch of stock footage, I mean, you can easily incorporate that and loosen, you know, definitely lighten the animator's load if there's a couple, you know, sequences that you can reuse over oh, and yeah. over. So, I mean, it, it's absolutely. smart. It's smart thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, we use that uh, later on. Uh, I used it, you know, with uh, uh, when I was animating those Batman Zellers commercials in. Uh, in yes. Mm-hmm. You know. So that's very similar, you know, that, that's ba- the same basic, uh, you know, uh, uh, works, work, uh, you know, production, you know, uh, you know, process. So so with Filmation, you said that, you know, you worked, uh, you met Lou Scheimer, I guess. Yes. You, oh, you know, yes. Any, what, talk to us a little bit about that and what those interactions were like. Well, there was, he was very, you know, he, he knew everybody's name, you know. Oh, cool. He knew who nice. I was. Huh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I didn't know this until years later, is that we have the same birthday, but he's 10 years older. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so so he ran, so he was basically in charge of all Filmation, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, he was a yeah, I, I know Filmation went through a few changes a little bit later on, like after the He-Man and She-Ra projects and all that stuff. And then we rolled into, did you, you did Brave Star too, is that correct? Yeah, I was on, I had left and, and moved to, uh, to Rhode Island by that time. And I was on, st- I mean, I was on staff uh, finishing, you know, uh, uh, throughout uh, finishing the last part of uh, the ha- Happily Ever After film. Oh, and yes. then they were they were going to do bugs uh, some big bugs town or, or the uh, that didn't show up uh, the uh, uh, brave star and then everything came crashing because Lorimar you know just they had bought they had bought filmation but the deal was they were going to keep everybody working and they reneged on that and they just pulled the drug, a rug out of out of uh, from underneath everybody including Lou Scheimer. On that. Uh, that's too bad because okay. they were doing some really good work and like Brave Star especially really struck me because you know it's one of those diverse characters we had Brave Star you know uh, basically if you don't know what Brave Star is you know it's one of those shows you know Filmation took it it's 1988 now and it's one of these dark horse properties that you know doesn't get a lot of buzz but it's really really good and it's about like a lone <laughs> sheriff you know Marshall Brave Star and he's in like a sci-fi western world of New Texas mm-hmm. 
And, you know, he's got his faithful steed, 3030, and he fights, you know, the evil forces of Tex-Hex. So, you know, it's similar to it's this it's the He-Man formula over and over again, except now we're getting to see the She-Ra's. We're getting to see a Native American in a lead role. We're getting that diversity in our cartoon. So it's not only your, you know, your white bread male that you're used to seeing. Now we're getting to see people of different colors and, you know, different sexes now playing the lead role. Like it was fascinating at the time as like a cartoon watcher to see these changes. Could you speak on anything to do with that? No, because I was out of the studio. So oh, I gotcha. really, mm-hmm. I mean, I really can't, uh, um, you know, uh, speak to that. I could only, you know, talk about, you know, uh, what it was like. And then suddenly having everything just, you know, just uh, just cut cut right off like yeah. that. that. That's the experience yeah. that I had. Because I, you know, I mean, I was uh, I was on, I was still on staff and then suddenly it's no longer the studio is no longer in existence. Wow. That must've been, yeah, that must've been rough. That's, that's terrible. And you know what? Filmation is one of those things as a kid, when you heard that chime going across the screen and it didn't matter where you were in the house, you knew that a filmation cartoon meant a fun time in front of that TV. So, you know, hats off to you guys for doing that. But one thing that you've brought up over and over, and I finally want to get to this and (laughs) rock and rule. Okay. <laughs> Nell Vanna's 1983. It was a Canadian animated adult, what I'll call, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, an adult rock fantasy. Would that not be a uh, a way to yeah, describe this thing? Point. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a, it was a Nine Lives the, of Fritz the Cat. But let's put it this way. Uh, as my sister-in-law said, I didn't realize there was so, many, so much drugs in the movie. <laughs> I was blown away. <laughs> so I'm a kid watching this on CBC in Canada, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know what I was watching at the time. I literally turned on the screen after the opening credits were over, and I was just entranced for the next little while while this thing was on. I, I And then... It was like it like no VCRs didn't exist at the time that right. I watched this thing or I didn't have one at least. Right. And uh, I never saw it again. So I'm like, my God, what was that show? And it wasn't until years later that I found out it was rock and roll. And when you said that you worked on it, it was like, oh, my God, it was like a super fanboy moment. I had to ask you about it <laughs> because it was so different, because like you said, it had rock music. It had like the females were a little bit more adult drawn, if you know what I'm yeah. saying. And, yeah. you know, there was drugs, yeah, there was all this stuff. Hit me with some rock and roll knowledge, man. OK, here you go. Um, when I was hired, when 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 I, I was hired back in in uh, 78 back in, when I was in, at Cal- in California, you know, when, when Michael Hirsch came by and they wanted to do a feature film. And the reason that I, they, they were hiring me to come to Canada, because back then, you know, once again, you, you know, uh, you couldn't just get a work permit. You needed to have, you know, some reason. Why are you, why, why are we hiring you? Why are they, why can't they, what, what, what can you bring to the table that other Canadian Artists could not. Well, I had already two years of two feature films under my belt and California experience. And there were no there was never a Canadian animated feature. Absolutely. So, mm. Right. So that's the first that's, and, and rock and roll would have been the first one. So so uh, so uh, I was hired for that. And, and what happened is that I didn't realize I didn't know at the time, but the, de- uh, the, the, the first film I was hired on to work on on uh, the devil and daniel mouse yes and um and that is the prototype for rock and roll wow you- that yeah you can really see the you can really see the similarities there for sure like the uh the animation in like the ladies and different things like that you're you're bang on there 
Well, yeah. Well, it's a basically it's about uh, it's about you know uh, a, a couple or a band that 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 uh, that is looking for fame and fortune. And how much are they? You know, in, in Devil and Daniel Mao, Dan, uh, Jan Mao sells her soul for uh, uh, to become a rock star. Which is basically which is basically the plot of rock and rule is that you've got another guy called Mock M O K and you know he wants to you know he wants to take over the world with his band so he's you know he's recruiting this other popular band and other lead singers to become his band under yeah. under duress of course and they use a voice and a, they're, they're very similar and but but there's also a, a ton of music yes okay? so that would be a rights disaster this day and age pulling that off. Oh, well, yeah, but back then, you you know, we, we were basically, you only had Disney and Ralph Bakshi made. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and, and and Disney was still, you know, a, a, you know, like very sugary, you know, and, and uh, the, you know, Bluth had pulled away and was doing uh, Secret of Nim. And uh, so he had, he had taken away all of the, the, the people, um, you know, from, from, uh, from Disney's. Um, I have to say one thing. Uh, the reason that 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 I actually uh, decided to go with uh, back to Nelvana is because during prior to being um, you know being hired you know being being uh, uh, you know approached once again uh, to go back, um, I had said okay, I've got my reel. Let me see if I could get back uh, get into uh, into Disney. And so this is uh, the summer of 1977. I am still 27 years old. Okay. And so I approach them and, and I said, I call them up. I said, I'm a union member. I've been, you know, I've been doing, a, I, I, they, they were just, they were trying to get their animation, uh, 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 you know, a program, you know, trainees and bring people up and develop. Cause all, you know, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, they were all, everybody was retiring. You know, all of the, the, the nine old men. So all they had were trainees and, you know, some, you know, people who had been at the studios for many years, but they needed a new new blood, a new generation. So right. I thought, OK, well, let me see. Uh, I've got some experience. I've got I know what I'm doing. It's not like, I'm, you know, I, I know how to draw. I could just show. Them. Well, I, I laid the, you know, the um, uh, I I just called up, you know, uh, the um uh, the uh, the person in charge of the of the training program and you know for recruiting and I said who I was and I told him and what my credits were and whatnot he says well I'm sorry but uh you you're you're too old and you've got too much experience you can't ouch. be you can't be molded into the Disney way <laughs> ouch screw so, you Mickey Mouse <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So uh, when when rock and when when uh, when Nelvana you know and that was only like maybe a couple of weeks later that they they contact that Nelvana you know contacted me they picked up they found me <laughs> you know because I you know <laughs> I didn't leave any forwarding address or telephone number they just knew I was in California and that I was you know, where that I was a union member and uh, they just called the union and and found out and it was Michael Hirsch who was there so we had our conversation and 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 that's where. That's where I how I got to rock and roll. So, um, but rock and roll, I think, is to me, it is the most unique film of the 70s and maybe even the 80s because it was all raw, you know. Oh, yeah, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Raw, raw in the tent, in the sense of we all were very young when we did it. I mean, I started on that and I had just turned 30. I was my one of the oldest people there on staff. 
you know it's, and, it's got this electricity about it john it's it's hard to describe it doesn't feel you know a lot of the a lot of the theatrical releases at the time that were out you know they've got this safe feel to it you know what i mean you don't have that you got a grittiness you've got this you know you don't know what to expect or what's coming you know what i mean with with rock and roll and uh as a kid it 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 blew me away it put me on my seat you know what i mean loved it yeah well i i know we, we had a chance to uh, we had a chance to experiment. I mean, I, I was given these three characters that were non really, um, they, they really weren't that important, you know, in the overall scheme of things, but they did have certain, they, they performed their functions, you know, plot wise, but they weren't the major characters. So I, they, they let me play with them and do stuff with them. And, uh, you know, with, you know, for example, like with, with Cindy, the whole entrance, they 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 allowed me to play with how to get her into into outside of off of the air vent. So they just the script just called for her to just climb out from the air vent. Well, if you remember what what, what her opening shot is, how she comes out, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, butt first. Yes, yes, I, I <laughs> that's one of the recollections visually that I recall yes. as a kid. I'm like, what am I watching? This is great. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, thank you, sir, for that. <laughs> but it was uh, Nelvana at that time. There, there's, there, if people will understand this in, in in Canadian history, okay, animation history, there is Nelvana of 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 uh, rock and roll and 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 before that, and then Nelvana afterwards from 1976 77 until uh, 1983 84 rock and roll or rather nelvana was kind of the most um most enthused it, it was kind of a very electric place to be to be in and as a young person and and i say that because people the the old disney animators that that i brought up there to like frank thomas and ollie johnson and uh, um, Ken Anderson, they gave us lectures over a period of, of a couple of years. And they all said they reminded them of Disney of the Hyperion days before Snow White. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, I got to agree with that. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, when we were, uh, we, well, it wasn't so much that we were living, we were at a studio. Uh, you've seen, I don't know if you've seen uh, the, um, uh, on my on my website and uh, and the, uh, the YouTube videos, there is uh, there's a picture of us outside of the the terminal warehouse um, where this is 1979 and uh, it was a it was still a working fish fishery it was still it was it, it, it was as a warehouse <laughs> and we were on the upper stairs that, that's harbor <laughs> that's cool so so you had like a, it was it was like a fish plant is that what you're saying? Well, what it is it was it was a shipping thing. We were ten feet off of Lake Lake Ontario. <laughs> nice. Oh boy! <laughs> you know, so people were you know it. they were bringing in their uh, you know uh, the CN Tower is has just been finished. You know, they're d- the d- it's all it's all uh, you know train area. You know, uh, train tracks and and train yards and and there's breweries and there's all kinds of things going on there. The smell of of uh, mold of, of hops. You know, roasting it, it, that permeates <laughs> the whole area at that time, and um, That's funny. and and so and so, but but going there as a young guy, I said, okay, I'm on, I'm I'm, I'm doing something that I'm, you know, it, it is not a nine to five, you know, uh, suit wearing job. 
you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> but they were all <laughs> rock sure. and rolls. Everybody, the average age might have been no more than about 26 years old. Wow, wow, that was a super young crowd there for sure. Yes. great. Yeah. They're all rock wow. and rollers. They're all painters, all artists, musicians. You know, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, uh, so that uh, there's a lot that I'm. I, uh, all of those people, all of those those people, including myself, have been the, to the to the club six six six, you know, in one way or another. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Right. So there you go. Uh, anyway, uh, am I am I uh, are we uh, have I have I answered your questions about rock and roll? Oh yeah, no, that's fabulous, man. That's uh, like I said, that's 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 a big deal here in Canada. And like, listen, if you haven't seen Rock and Roll and you're listening to this show, put us on pause and go take a watch of that because it is definitely uh, a unique animation experience you're not going to forget. And so, definitely a great soundtrack on that bad boy as well. So, oh, yeah. what else you got, Christopher? <laughs> Oh, if we jump ahead towards like the uh, the turn of the century, uh, one of the properties that's near and dear to me is the X-Men. And uh, you were part of X-Men Evolution. Uh, do you have any memories working for that Marvel project? And like how direct was Marvel involved in the in the overall process there? Again, I was doing freelance off of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I did was I was a timing. Uh, I, I directed the timing on, on 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 sequences. You know, remember telling you about exposure sheets? Yes, you know? yeah. yes. Okay. So what I would do is I would get now. This is after you know, um, um, after I had uh, been I've been working at at uh, at Rich Animation Nest Animation for about ten years, and that's when animation you know they just stopped doing two D animation. I I picked up work from uh, from other studios and. You know, X Men Evolution. You know, I knew the the designer and director from you know from working at Nest at at Rich Animation. Mm-hmm. So he hired me on you know to do to take storyboards and I would I would uh, time the sheets and uh, I would get I would get the storyboards and I would start cutting the sheets and listening to the soundtrack and uh, and then I was just directing. I would I would I would do. Um, uh, the thumbnails in on the sheets themselves to show, you know, to help direct the animators because all it was all being sent overseas by that time to the animation. Gotcha. So, uh, so therefore, I was uh, I was just I was doing stuff that uh, you know, putting sometimes it would be uh, post-it notes on there or just drawing straight onto the onto the sheets themselves and uh, doing the timings and explaining. What, what characters were doing and giving them all different timings. And um, that's as far as I got, but I worked on it on, on, on several shows. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so that's where my credits come from there. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, you talk, Very you cool. talk about like, was there anything I know you like, you were in like the hotbed of animation growing up, like going to coming up through the ranks in the seventies and eighties. Was there any dream projects that, you know, you, you wish that you were a part of or that you still want to accomplish as, as an animator cartoonist today? Well, what, like, back- what were some of the hot, like what, what I'm getting at is like at the time when you were animating these shows, like, was there any other shows that were really, really catching fire that you would, you would really want to have a part of as well? Hmm. Um, hmm. I know that that you know that I was approached to to come to come on and and to work on uh, on. Um, uh, at one point, they were talking about uh, 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 a head a headhunter was coming and asking if if I'd be interested in 
working on uh, the Hunchback. Oh, and, uh, wow. and I thought, but I would have to have to relocate from Cincinnati, and I just did not want to do that. And uh, at that, but by that point, you know, we're talking about in the early, the mid '90s. But I would have to leave someplace where that had been. Get, you know, I was working for Rich Animation from uh, out of Cincinnati, a, a staff in in union. I was making above union wage, and but he was in Los Angeles. I didn't meet him for ten years. I, oh, wow. I through fax machine. I worked through uh, uh, through FedEx. So I I just didn't want to do it because I didn't think I would fit into. By that time, I didn't fit into the Disney style of doing anything. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know what? Disney had trained, you know, had changed their game anyway. I mean, their style became, uh, you know, very much disassociated from what you saw in the '60s and '70s. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was a, definitely a different brand at that point. Yeah, yeah. and and I just didn't. I, I said I, I I just can't. I just can't be. You know, I, I just didn't want to make the shift. You know, yeah. by that time, because you're talking about in in uh, in the mid '90s. I'm I'm 45. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd done enough movement, and so I just didn't want to do it. I hear you. Gotcha. So talking about today's generation of animators yeah. and all that stuff, you as an animator, what message would you share with a person who would like to become an animator in the business today? Like what pitfalls would you avoid, and where would you go to learn your craft today? What is, what's your suggestions, John? Uh, but, you see, I don't know. What, I, I, I am going to be very honest about this. I don't know because it's a very different world exactly sure. and i'm not going to try and give advice about what happened back then and because it's not it's not relevant the right. only thing I, I will say though is if 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 you do not want to draw you will always be at the mercy of the designer you know and 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 whatever whatever uh, off the rack computer program you know that you're being forced to use um if you want to, if you, if you, if you're talking about being creative, it's one thing. If you're talking about being a member, being, being a, uh, you know, uh, somebody who's just going to be punching, punching keys and shifting things, I, I'm, there are many more, be- there are better people, more, um, you know, more qualified people than I. So I'm not going to even attempt to do that. But what I will say though, if you, if you're talking about wanting to learn it for yourself and create your own work um i would say learn how uh, to create your own work you you better know how to how to write how to ah, how to tell good. a story mm. yes because animators have to know what the story is and what's important about it i mean that's the, that's that's it's not just about about drawing you know pretty pictures or being able to Im- mimic uh, a double take that Bugs Bunny would do or or uh, <laughs> you know or, or anything of those no learn storytelling so that you understand the, the the basics of what makes a good story work you know develop character understanding what makes uh, what motivates a personality and character learn how to write uh, create your own material um, and, you know, uh, because in today's world, you know, intellectual property, you know, you, you're not going to go working for anybody who is um, uh, they, they will. Have, the corporations, the media all have an enormous amount of of material that they're trying to recycle. 
Okay. Oh, definitely. The sure, the amount of original sure. ideas in 2020 are are minimal. We've seen everything. We've done everything. So right. someone who someone who presents an original idea in 2020 is a miracle worker. Trust me. Because a unicorn. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so and so so what I'm going to say is about we're talking about if we're talking about the art of animation. Well, then I will tell you. You know, um, it's a very long, hard thing to do. I mean, I've done I, I I've done my own video, my own. Uh, 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 little, little little bit with Snuffy and Zoe for my YouTube channel, but you know there, that's not something that's going that was making any any money. I did it to experiment to see if I still had the chops to do it, <laughs> uh, and I still do. Uh, and so I made my own little two and a half minute you know musical uh, video with the two of them. Um, but if you're going to do anything, um, I would I would say. Um, there's the, it's the comic books that, that you might have a better chance of, of actually enjoying what you're doing because comics are, you know, are a lot more inexpensive to produce and it, it doesn't take as much time, but you still mm-hmm. have to know the same thing. Posing, uh, uh, you, you've got to know how to uh, how to emote, how to create characters, design, layout. Um, you know, um, the um, uh, telling a story within a certain number of pages. Um, there is a lot more to they're they're very, they're very similar to to doing, you know, doing um, uh, animated films. It's just that you don't have the movement in it, but you still have to have you have to capture motion in your panels because that's your stage. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. You sure. know, so. um you know, I mean, the the best way they're expl- to explain or uh, as examples of of what I consider for people who are just trying to do what I did, um, you know, check out my Indiegogo campaign. Uh, I'm doing creative. Uh, I'm doing comics, you know, in the old style of the 1940s and 50s and maybe even 60s. And they're everything that I know. I've put into them, um, you know, you just 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 look at the drawings themselves and you'll see uh, a classic animation style of movement. There's squash Absolutely. stretches, there's expressiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, there's there's all this material, um, but it all goes into creating something that isn't just a stick figure. That's not just standing and 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 mouthing off dialogue. There's a lot of, of physical activity. There's a lot of emoting. I mean, that's the best way I, I, I can say. Uh, school-wise, uh, if you want to learn, you know, the basics of animation, my YouTube video, I, everything that I know, I've put into into that. I've got videos, a series, you know, maybe ten videos, which show uh, squash and stretch overlapping action using Snuffy and Zoe to show, you know excerpts and showing them in slow motion as to what squash and stretch will do you know how the characters are are running and and why you know how 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 i take a bouncing ball the principles of squash and stretch and bouncing ball into a jump you know you can see all Mm -hmm. of that um and then uh what else is there um yeah uh I mean, you know, they're, they're, and those are all free. Uh, if you're going to need a, a book, you know, I only did, I only used three books or so as my as my learning experience, and you know, that was the uh, the Preston Blair books, 
There are two of them, or they, they've been combined to one. And that's all the basic things that you really need. There's also the Nicolaides, Nicolaides uh, natural way to draw. And, you know, if you really want to do fanboy or, you know, be, you know, do the check out certain things, the art of uh, the illusion of life, you know, oh, the cool. Frank Thomas and Ollie Don Johnson book. Any more than that, you're spending thousands of dollars for a job you may not get. <laughs> I think true. You're right on the money. <laughs> that is true. Now, now, John, we've talked a lot about, you know, a lot of a lot of history here, a lot of animation history, a lot about your own career rolling through, you know, your past. Why don't we talk about something that's near and dear to your heart? You talked about Suffy and Zoe and Mega Moose projects. Why don't we hit them up and talk about your Indiegogo? What's happening with you? Okay. Well, what it is is that I've done I'm doing my own line of comics, uh, John the Animator Comics. Uh, the idea is that I'm 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 creating comics for the 12 year olds and under because today's comics are basically aimed at a 14 maybe 13 but 14 15 year old entry level because in the old days when I was you know again I was growing up I I, I did comic books I read comic books because they were fun. Uh, mm -hmm. And as a as a child, I was attracted to certain things. And today, everything is very gritty, very uh, p not even PG thirteen. It's it's just like you know seventeen plus, you know. Exactly. Uh, and so therefore, I said, okay, comic books. And, and this is that everybody, anybody who who has any understanding of the industry understands that you have to comic books today. You know, you have to teach kids that there are such a thing as comic books i'm not talking about just dog man okay or captain underpants sure. uh we're talking about the type of things that will that will relate to kids as they are growing older and not talk down to them i mean for example mm -hmm. snuffy and zoe i aim it at four to seven year olds and they're snuffy and zoe are two uh, uh sibling bears and when they are, they have their own fantasy world. They're whimsy and 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 they're innocent. Okay, there's a lack of innocence in today's comic books, and Absolutely. that is because it, 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 I don't think that the creators remember what it was like being under the age of seven, seven and under. They don't remember, and I don't want. I'm not talking about doing sugary stuff. I you know don't don't talk I'm not talking down to kids I'm talking the way they were if you were to do a uh, let's put it this way Snuffy and Zoe are kind of like our gang comedies okay okay you know they they, they you know there's a certain innocence you know sure they're they're kind of like rough and tough and what have you but there's a certain amount of innocence that are that's there uh, and there's not a lot of wink and nod and you know uh, innuendo or what have you. Um, but then you not you don't talk down to them. I'm not talking down to to the, the my intended audience. So with Snuffy and Zoe, when they're bored, they jump into their magic toy box and they have adventures. They 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 uh, they like for example like they they go and they steal cupcakes from a dragon, or they are they are uh, they go searching for their soccer ball and they are captured by pirates made out of colorful balloons. And they have, you know, they're made to walk the plank. And how are they, how are they going to escape from this? All of these, those, those adventures, you know, are are basically to help help and um, uh, get kids 
encourage kids to develop their own imagination muscles, which is what we were. Every we don't we didn't have any of the material that you have today. There is so much there out there for young kids that unless they are encouraged to develop their own imagination muscles, they won't remember. They won't know how to imagine. Exactly right. It's true. Hundred percent. Exactly right. So where can we find this work? Where where can we find your Indiegogo? There's that. There's also Mega Moose. Oh yes. Mega Moose is for like eight to twelve year olds. It's 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 about uh, a nerd who is bullied at school and he has he's given a magic feather and with a tickle of it he sneezes and he can turn into a giant a, a, a minotaur character is the son of a superhero character who happens to look vaguely similar to the his school's mascot and so, <laughs> cool. and, so awesome. and, and 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 think but he has all the powers of the animal kingdom you know he can he can leap you know, uh, a, a, you know, like, you know, like blocks at a time. He can run as fast as combined of forces of all of the fast animals that you've ever seen. You know, he could do all this stuff, but nobody believes that he can do it. So, you know, he, he is trying to survive school and that, and the society that he lives in. So that's the basic element of that. And so it's, that's aimed to, you know, the, the eight to 12 year olds. And that's very cool. and, and so very, those very are my cool. tools. neat. So you said it's an Indiegogo campaign. Where can they yes, find you and an your Indiegogo. stuff, John? Pardon? Where can they find yourself on the internet, and where can they find your campaign? Okay, Indie, in, in, uh, go to Indiegogo and just type in John the Animator Comics. That's the campaign's name. On on YouTube, uh, I'm just John Celestri, and as it's spelled J O H N C E L E. S-T-R-I, the very straightforward. Um, I keep it very simple. Uh, and the same way with my Twitter account, it's uh, John Celestri, at Celestri John. Very and, cool. And, and, uh, so there, there's a blog that I have, uh, again, johncelestri.blogspot.com. The, one of the best things to do right now, if you want, if you – just type in my name, John Celestri or John the Animator Guy, and you'll get all kinds of connections to me. But if you go on Twitter and you and you follow me, you know, uh, you'll you'll be able to. I can direct you to wherever you want to go, basically. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, and we will we will include all of those links in the show notes and at the site, so uh, we'll be able to. Uh, hopefully help uh, facilitate people's searches uh, and and help find you. Uh, you know, before we cut out of here, we definitely want to thank you so much for uh, spending this afternoon with us today. It's been, it's been a treat. It's also been quite an education. Um, <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. I learned a whole lot and uh, it really means a lot to us that you'd, uh, that you'd sit down with us and, and have this conversation. So thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome, Chris and Chris. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, John. You know what? A lot of uh, a lot of fans and a lot of uh, animators and fans of uh, you know Saturday morning cartoon genre, they're, they're just going to love this. So you know, we appreciate the, all the knowledge you shared with us and the the history. And uh, hopefully, get out there and everybody support John Celestri because I think this is a guy who uh, who deserves who deserves a look, and he's got a lot of history. And uh, go out and check out some uh, Mega Moose. It's going to be yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Thank Thank you very much, John. Thank you, guys. You take care.
Thanks have for having me. Thank, okay. thank you so much. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All righty. Now let's head into Strike Force Moratory number 29. This book came with a May 1989 cover date. The story is called Dead Reckoning, written by James D. Hudnall with pencils by Mark Bagley, inks by Carlos Garcon, and uh, boy, does it show. Uh, <laughs> art, uh, is a lot more uh, palatable under Val Myrick's uh, inks. This is a little bit sketchier. Uh, letters, Phil Felix, colors, Max Scheel, edits, Carl Potts, chief, DeFalco, cover price, buck fifty USD, toucan, and 50p uck. Now, this came out. We're actually in 1989 proper here because this one hit shelves right. yeah, on January 3rd, 1989. Sometimes you read solicits. This time we ain't because we couldn't find one. So uh, ah, They didn't, they didn't care enough to give us one. They sure didn't. Uh, now, our cover is a, is a case of some lousy perspective here, <laughs> we think. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. Because from the looks of it, Robert, uh, Revenge, Robert, not Robert, Revenge, he has grown to gargantuan size here, and he is laid out at the bridge where the bomb went off at the end of last issue. He's being attacked by chocker, choppers as the super train, super train falls into the drink below. You know what? Uh, not my favorite cover. I'm going to fully oh. admit that. It is uh, the perspective is uh, all over God's creation here. Uh, But one thing I will say about this, you know, his size fluctuates from panel to panel and and from book to book. It's never really truly addressed. I mean, is this just an artistic decision? Is this Rob Liefeld like just trying to say that I am going to put a large set of breasts on Captain America this week? We don't know. We don't know. It's never truly, you know, told to us in the book why. I hope there's a reason for it. I hope that part of his power set, which we don't know yet, is that he can increase in size as he gets jacked. You know what I mean? It's almost like a Bane type deal with with that uh, venom running through his veins. You know what I mean? But who knows? It's true. I guess we're left to wonder, brother. Yeah, it's true because, I mean, I I think it's pretty clear that this is just really, really bad perspective. But the fact that he does seem to grow, like he's always different sizes. And even – they even like – lampshaded it with that little uh you know body by moratori gag they put in an issue a few issues ago with a little pinup where he's like just swollen you know so he does fluctuate in size yep may just be uh bagley going off off spec or who knows so it's weird that we see him and it, and all it really is is bad perspective but we've been trained to think that he changes size. So it's like, Oh, maybe he just grew to be 50 feet tall. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> but we you jump know right in. Okay. This, this would, this would probably be avoided. If they had taken the art class that I'm taking currently at the moment, they would know oh, there that th- there's never any need for actual drawing. They can actually just shape a 3d character and position the, <laughs> and hit a button and it would actually resize it. And make sure the perspective is great for you. So, guys, I don't know what you're doing with your rulers and all that stuff with your pencil. You're just wasting time when you can just you can just let the computer do it for you. I mean, come on, that's that's a good way to do it, right, Chris? Right? Well, I mean, we went through we went through a few of the pages of how to draw comics the Marvel way, but that is clearly obsolete. <laughs> clearly, clearly. Uh, now we jump right in here, and uh, we open right after that bomb went boom. And we join Revenge, who for a hot minute believes he's actually dead. Well, that that is until he bothers to open his eyes. He's like, oh, wait, I just had my eyes closed. Whoops. Um, He pulls himself to his feet, and he wonders just what in the hell happened. And he catches us up on, you know, 
everything we saw at the end of the previous issue and even things before that. So like we get a refresher that the war with the Horde is Dunsky. We also get a you know refresher that the Moratory were taking a unearned victory lap around the country in their super train. Super train, yeah. Oh, sorry. And and then the the train went boom. Uh, now, just as he recalls this, Revenge looks out onto into the water to see the wreckage of the train just sitting there bobbing in the drink. Sons of guns blowing up that train. What a bunch. Mm-hmm. What a pack of morons here. Anyway, I'll tell you what. This speaks to his powers because he is not in too bad a shape when you consider that That's he true. just survived a complete explosion. You know, I, I, I'm really starting to take a liking to Revenge because, you know, he seems to be like a – like almost like a Robert villain, but he's got this good yeah. nature about him. You know what I mean? Like his intentions are in the right place. He's not like a renegade, you know, bent on death and destruction like Robert was at the end of his uh, end of his reign of terror. Face, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if this is starting to. Uh, I don't know if it's me just really, really liking this book, and now I've got like rose-colored glasses on every single issue. But that suit is almost starting to grow on me, Chris. It's it's hard to admit, but it actually <laughs> is. Now, I, I think I figured out exactly what this looks like. I think he would not be at a place in, like, a book like Quasar. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, maybe. Huh? <laughs> you think maybe? Uh, you know what? There's just no saving that mess. Just forget what I said. Strike that from the record. <laughs> well, Quasar, I mean, I, I, I can I, – I, I've, I've gotten these precognitive powers here uh, over the past little while here, and I see us actually discussing a little bit of Quasar in probably a year from now or something like that. Because I think they revisit a certain uh, universe that's kind of new in there somewhere. Oh, man, my head hurts. Ooh, all I'm seeing is white. Um, Now, as Revenge approaches the train, however, he is attacked by the ghost, Tom Von Ock. Ooh, the ghost strikes, baby. Now, Van Ock is becoming definitely one of my favorite moratory of the current era. I I just hope he's not a bad dude for, you know, too long anyway. Mm. Now, but before we get into that mess, let's shift scenes and check in with Dr. Tulima, whose first name is spelled like four or five different ways in this issue. Um, <laughs> like sometimes it's one M, sometimes it's two M's, Tulima, sometimes it's U-O, sometimes it's O-U. Uh, and didn't these editors like just go through the butt dive boot camp? Uh, didn't they? I could have sworn we had like five years worth of bullpen bulletins talking about how they went through boot camp under defalco grunwald so uh, i mean come on guys come on well i mean you know what this this one has like that extra m so you know (laughs) i think it started i think it chemo's name started with just one m so you know what unless he's undergoing a change and he's in a witness protection program and just needed that you know very mild name change i think that's the way we can explain this i don't know (laughs) <laughs> That'd be like that's like the uh, the Clark Kent wearing the glasses thing. It's like no, this is the wrong Tulima. <laughs> this one has two ends. Oh. I, I tell you what, it, it's it's definitely not Carl Potts' problem. Okay, that guy's doing his job. All right, people need it's to know true. that. It's true. There you go. Thank you. Now, now Tulima <laughs> is drowning his sorrows in some hard liquor at the airport bar in Barcelona. He's got some inner monologue going on about his recent failures and, uh, you know, the whole thing about being taken advantage of by the Padilla bigwigs, uh, you know, fake ass Lamont and the like, telling him that his daughter might still be alive or telling him that his daughter really in no uncertain terms is still alive. Uh, Suddenly, Talima sees a striking reflection in his glass of booze. And that's the reflection of the tiger, Zakir Shastri, 
Ah, uh, man, why why did it take so long for us to like flesh out Dr. Talima? I know. This is some of the best stuff. I mean, you know, Talima is heavily written in Hudnall's writing. I mean, this is one of the rare misses that, you know, that, that Gillis didn't have when, you know, the Gillis and Anderson run for issues 1 through 20, you know what I mean? This, yeah. I think they should have absolutely gave us more Talima. And, uh, man, Hudnall has given it to us, like, hand over fist, and I'm loving every bit of this. And Oh, for sure. Now he's facing one of the killers. The old oh, tiger has found him. It's true. Yeah, yeah. The exploring Talima is that feels like it was just such an untapped uh, story resource for the uh, for the Gillis run. Um, yep. You gotta figure. I mean, because he he's a very complex character. Even when we don't know anything about him, there's a complexity to him. So. One hundred percent. Yeah, and to actually flesh it out here under uh, Hudnall, great stuff. So from here. We're going to jump to a rather strange scene playing out in Our Man Dan the Scan's Dome. He's being visited once more by Will Mother Effin Deguchi. Now, Will. Willie's Willie's back, baby. He is indeed. And he's really laying into Dan for failing him. You know, not sharing what he knows with his fellow Moratori. Though, in Dan's defense, Will's last message was nebulous at best and also truncated with his death. Or supposed death. I mean, it's, uh, you know, he really didn't tell him much that you could go on. Uh, Will presses Dan to, you know, not screw up this time. And he also warns about the new ones. Remember, the new ones that you're not supposed to trust. Well, he gives us a little bit more detail, which probably would have been very helpful, like, four or five issues ago when he made his first address. Now, you see those new ones not to trust. Well, they're hiding behind the moon. So uh looks like he meant the vaccines and maybe not the killer moratory then. And certainly not, you know, uh, Fiona and Yoko. I wonder if this was always the plan, you know, or if this is kind of like a sidestep here. They Maybe they had to change it up when the book got canceled because, uh, let's be honest here, they've got two issues left. They had to know by now that this thing was coming to an end, right? Yeah. Uh, this is just borderline weird, man. Yeah. I mean, it was clear first when you had Will talking that he was absolutely talking about the moratory. That's there. There was no other way to interpret it. No but doubt. Now, he, now they give him a little bit of extra dialogue in this dream to emphasize or give him a back door that the new ones are not moratory, mm-hmm. but they're the Vaxians. Yeah. I mean, what is he missing is that only, you know, only that Talima has ever seen really the vaccines. I mean, they, they've had a very, very brief journey here inside this book. I mean, besides yeah. their tangled with the horde, these guys are pretty well unknown to Earth in general. I mean, they, they were talked about, you know, defeating the horde, but I mean, we really haven't seen their presence. So to call no. them the new ones and have such a knowledge of them uh, leaves a little bit of an open storyline gap here, I think. Yeah, because I mean, how would, how would, like, to, has it been established that Taguchi could see the future? I, I don't think so. No. Nope. Right? So it's like at the point where he delivered this address, he there was there'd be no way for him to know. Um, he was being he wasn't anywhere in the vicinity of Tulima, who, as nope. you mentioned, is like the only person to see him uh, besides poor Randy, yes. who, <laughs> who is unavailable <laughs> for comment. <laughs> but but it, it, this very much feels like. You know, word came down. It's like, hey, you got two <laughs> issues. Wrap it up. So all of your loose loose threads need to be tied up. So boy, boy, the vaccines got some work to do in these next two issues. 
<laughs> no doubt. I mean, we could probably count the pages that the vaccines appeared on with with our hands. You Easily. know, this is this has been 29 issues and we can count the, the amount of pages that the new ones, the big threat have shown up on on, on two hands. Um, very weird, very weird stuff. Uh, now, Dan, he wakes up, he comes to and he finds himself along with Fiona and Yoko with just barely enough room to keep their heads above water remember it is underwater they argue a bit about what to do next which feels a little bit forced um yeah i, I think that though it's 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 kind of like page page filler page killer here um just a lot of back and forth and though these are all relatively new to the process it's so it's like not like any of them is being looked at as a leader per se just yet so i, I suppose they're arguing does sort of make sense but it does feel like it goes on a, a little too long uh, now it's here that Dan decides to fill them in on everything Will DeGucci passed along. Thankfully, you know, they extended that message. Great timing, Dan. Um, now, this Damn. includes the fact that the Badian government is up to something rather nefarious. And this news only makes Fiona and Yoko freak out all the more. Because, you know, in their words, how can they go against an entire government? And, uh, you know, that... I'll hand it to them. That's a pretty good question. And I'm guessing we're going to spend the next 50 or so pages finding out the answer. <laughs> I mean, seriously, with what we know about the moratorium, I'm actually stunned that one of these people didn't have one of those moratorium flare-ups, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. they just went through a massive trauma with that explosion of the train, and I mean, you know, they're full of adrenaline, they're being hunted down, and I mean, a lot of these situations make some of our heroes, like, sort of light up like Roman candles, you know what I mean? Yeah. But nope, none of these, these kids are actually pretty laid back after this bombing. I mean, they're taking it quite well, Chris. <laughs> Let's be honest. Relatively <laughs> speaking, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're sorry, we're you know we're upside down in our train here. We just got bombed, but I think we're good. But you know what I mean? It doesn't really make sense. Uh, but you know these are new recruits, and they have seen zero, zero battle time. And you yeah. know they've not even fought the horde for the most part. So I really don't get no. their their reaction to this. Uh, to me, I'd be in full fledged panic mode, like the sky is falling. You know, my God, chicken little, chicken little. But no. Sure. They're, 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 these strange. guys are composed, baby. They don't care. And when I first saw this scene, uh, I assumed that Lifter was going to use her lifting powers to lift them out of the water. <gasps> you're just but they overthinking. don't. You're, over, <laughs> you're overthinking. She'd never do that. Way My too much. God. <laughs> and I guess none of them are wearing their Air de Gucci, so they couldn't uh, <laughs> just propel, propel themselves out. They uh, should have had a guy called Trainer, and his only ability is to repair trains that have been blown yes. up. <laughs> no, that's up there with beth neon's plant powers yeah it's like oh man we got to blow up the train just to use this guy come on uh back topside the ghost is beating the hell out of revenge now after taking a few shots jason somehow deduces the timing of vanox blows and is able to at the very least defend himself he can't really land too many shots but he can at least block the ones that are coming in he then does some of that gambit charging thing to drive the ghost away for a bit. He throws some, you know, foliage or some dirt <laughs> at him that blows <laughs> up. Um, above, a helicopter is flying by, just like on the cover. And naturally, all they see is Revenge having a fit. He's fighting against nobody. They assume, again, <laughs> naturally, that uh, maybe Revenge has gone all squirrely in the brain. And uh, so they call into Wolf. Remember him? I, oh, I, yes. I actually, actually don't think we actually meant met mr wolf yet uh <laughs> and wolf 
who is the, of course, replacement Yuri, he further assumes that revenge has probably gone rogue, just like Sheer did a few issues back. And so Wolf orders the Padian Whirlybird to make a strafing run, more or less take revenge out. Uh, you know what? I think this was the idea all along. I, you know, I think revenge was, you know, not meant to escape Van Ock. And, you know, Van Ock's been sent in to clean up. You know, they have a crew yeah. to make sure that the job is done right this time. So they're not taking any chances because if they're going to make a hit on their own heroes, they got to make sure that this goes away. That's the last thing you need is a superpowered group to come out of this and come after you. So they need to make sure, make sure that this is put to bed. Yeah, they're tying up loose ends here for sure. Um, now, Revenge sees this Padian chopper and, you know. The chopper! You know, the chopper's Sorry. here. And, uh, and you know, seeing that it's a Padian pal, he starts to wave. You know, hey, it's me. How are you? And his greeting is paid back with, uh, well, a hail of bracka, 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 bracka bullets. Yeah, uh, baby. Revenge, yeah, Revenge, confused and getting angry, flees from the spray. Back underwater, Dan and the gals escape the sunken super train. Super train! Yeah! Sorry. I gotta take these chances when I can, because this is the end of the super There's train. There's so few. Yeah. This is all you get. This is for you, the people. The people. <laughs> yes. No. They begin swimming downriver, where hopefully they can emerge without drawing the attention of the Pydea or the ghost. All the while, Revenge continues to avoid taking fire. He hops into the water to try to give him the slip. Unfortunately for him, those choppers ain't going nowhere. They are ordered by Wolf to continue strafing the water until they can see a body float to the Good surface. Good lord. Yikes. <laughs> Well, you know what? Finally, at least the jig is up now in the Pidea. Yeah. That's the one good thing. You know, if their intentions were, were not exposed by now, we got no <laughs> hope. I mean, the government has completely gone rogue. Yeah. And, you know, they're after the folks who are meant to protect the earth. You know, they, they are the people who, you know, we thought were protecting the earth. And now they're hunting down our moratory like a pack of dogs. This ain't good, man. Oh, this no. is going sideways quick. And this is this is one of the highlights of the Hudnall run. I I'm I'm loving this. I got to be quite honest with you. Loving it. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, we're yeah, like in no uncertain terms here, we're we're actually getting the the idea where they where they've always meant to be um since this run yep. started. Uh and yeah, it's no longer nebulous. It's it's full on these are bad dudes. Um yep. or bad folks, I should say. Now, back in Barcelona, Tulima and the Tiger have themselves a chat. Now, Zakir apologizes. He claims that, you know, he respects the doctor for what he's done, but, you know, orders is orders. And uh, the killer Mortori have orders to kill him. Mm. Now, Tulima begs off and he tells the killer that he's got information about the cure. And uh, <laughs> and I, I guess Zakir really enjoyed Friday I'm in Love because he stands down. <laughs> <laughs> I never um, did like that song. <laughs> <laughs> Friday, it was it Monday? You can fall apart. Tuesday, Wednesday, break my heart. Um, that that could have been for uh, Shears uh, song there. Uh, now Tulima <laughs> tells him that they need to go somewhere quiet and private to talk this over. And next we know we're in an airport toilet because you know those are always the most quiet and private places, right? There's never like a line of 400 dudes at the door all waiting to pee, right? I know anytime I'm traveling and I just want to get away from it all, I go to the airport, airport toilet. Oh boy. Anywho, in the toilet, uh, Tulima reveals that you know the Padilla lied about the cure. There's nothing for certain, and for all the doc knows, this Jason Edwards. 
virus might actually make things worse. Zakir, it doesn't take much. He believes Talima right away. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, you know what, pal? I believe you. And he even <laughs> lets him walk away alive. So maybe we've got two of the killer moratory coming into the light. Meanwhile, Talima's wiping his brow. Whew, that worked. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. You know, I, I, I honestly, I love, <laughs> I love this glimpse of Zakir. So, you yeah. know, despite him being like, We've seen him before framed as like this, you know, savage terrorist. But mm-hmm. now we're seeing that he yeah, like he almost got a bit of honor. And, you know, he's yep. he's not the one who enjoys being lied to, number one. You know, I'm sort of digging the killer moratory as well because they're a little bit more than just simple assassins, you know. Yeah. They've been taken for a ride too, like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And now their aggressions are about to be given back tenfold to their superiors who can expect them to follow, you know, the idea thinks that these guys are still going to follow their ways, rank and file. But guess what? Yeah, it's going to turn around, brother. The boomerang is about to hit you right between the eyes. Yeah, I had such low expectations when we had these uh, these characters introduced. I thought they were going to be very, very one note. I thought yep. they were going to be just boilerplate killers, and uh, they've proven to be more than that. Uh, I do appreciate that there's this code of honor here. Um, and we've seen it with the ghosts and now we're seeing it with the tiger. That's, that's some very good stuff here. And I, I wonder if, uh, maybe the wind will be the one that breaks rank with, with the <laughs> other two. Wind. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Where, I mean, maybe he'll be the one who's just blindly uh, loyal to the Padilla and just, just to give us a little bit of contrast. I think that, uh, that, yeah, that I agree. there's a lot of meat on the bone here. So we head back to the bridge, the bridge that was blown up, of course. And Commander Wolf orders the choppers to keep looking and keep strafing. He then calls into fake-ass Lamont, who was in the middle of making whoopee with a rather well-endowed young lady. Yeah, and go boy. She, yeah, she was. She is very shapely, and they did like the whole, uh, like the Austin Powers thing, where like like his elbow is covering her boobs, yeah. or maybe his <laughs> knee is covering her boobs, or there's a plant in the foreground covering her boobs. But she is very well-endowed. Now, after scrambling the line, they're able to speak freely, and it looks like the gimmick here is going to be that they're going to frame revenge for going rogue and blowing up the bridge. Ah. Oh, yeah. And they're also going to kill him just as soon as he comes up for air, so there's that, too. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) From here, Lamont calls into Aunt May to fill her in on the recent terrorist attacks. Brava's murder and the bombing of the super train. Super train! (laughs) (laughs) breaking it down for you here yes aunt may's all oh my word and she orders an emergency meeting man i gotta tell you i know we're making (laughs) fun of this uh politician but uh aunt may looks at this point 100 percent like aunt may there's i mean there's literally (laughs) at this point there's no discernible difference whatsoever this is aunt may on on my panel here (laughs) Now I am liking the uh, the framing of the moratorium as terrorists. I, I do think that's a yeah. cool aspect. So you know, consider this. I mean, Paidea have full control over the media and all the footholders in the world government. So the Paidea is a way way more formidable foe than you know even the Horde were. You know yeah. they've got every single tool they need to destroy the moratorium. And you know the moratorium have not had their backs against the wall so bad since the early days of the Black Watch. So you know I, I love watching the stakes in this. And you know. The only issue is that, you know, our current day moratorium are super inexperienced as, you know, as fighters. So we haven't even seen them truly tested to any real degree. So we can only hope that the heroes, you know, the killers become allies sooner than later. Or these uh, these new group of, uh, you know, saved by the Bellers are not going to be in good <laughs> shape by the time the Paidea puts their clamps down. 
It's true. And and I, I, your point is well taken about the Padilla being uh, a scarier threat than the Horde because, I mean, even like cosmetically speaking or, you know, uh, you know, shallow superficially, they're humans, you yeah. know, um, and they, they, they and they portray themselves as protecting the, you know, the humans and the earth. So it's like these guys are hiding in plain sight and they're worse than any threat we've seen yet. So this is a, like, this is some like, good stuff. I'm glad that we don't have to worry about like, you know, our, you know, our leaders lying to us about stuff. You know what I mean? That's, that's a great oh, thing. Heaven you know, forbid. In, 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 in 2020 20, sure. about, about viruses and stuff like that, you know, at least we're safe here now in 2020. So that's good. I, I mean, 1989 was a long time ago, so I mean, we've come a long <laughs> way. Um, now back underwater. Uh, I mean, great lung capacity on these Gen Fivers. Oh yeah, out. hell yeah. Uh, Re- Revenge has reached the remains of the train, and he finds a few dead bodies bobbing in the drink, and he wonders if his friends managed to make it out alive. He then thinks a bit about the chopper chase, and he wonders if maybe this was a case of mistaken identity, or or if perhaps the Pythia might actually be trying to off the moratory. Uh, he vows that yeah, he vows that if this is the case, he'll show the Pythia the true meaning of his name, which, I mean, of course, is revenge. I mean, you know what? It, it, when you think about it, it's a pretty basic and primitive name as it is. But again, I asked the question, how is it that in 1988, 1989, that we have not had a character named Revenge by now? What the right. flip? Seriously, seriously. <laughs> It's true. This seems like low-laying fruit, brother. <laughs> I know we had a vengeance show up in a Ghost Rider not too long after this, but uh, yeah, this is yeah, man, yeah, very, very strange here. Now, we hop back to the other three, and they're downstream, and they finally pull themselves out of the drink. As the choppers fly overhead, they take cover under some nearby trees to avoid detection. Scanner uses his psi powers to get a better look at the flying folks, and he can sense that they're on something of a hunting mission. So he can deduce that they're not here to help. They're not here to find survivors. They are here. They're armed. They've got some guns, and they're looking to shoot them guns. Now, i got to ask a question here. So if he can mm-hmm. send stuff, you know, right now, how did he, yeah. how in the hell did he miss the whole peril of the train and the fact that Van Ock was on the train? I mean, does he, is it, does he like, have selective senses? Can he only, like, sense <laughs> the obvious? You know what I mean? <laughs> Is he the guy who like walks into a McDonald's and says, "I sense hamburgers"? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, he, he was getting chatted up by a young Yoko. Maybe he uh, maybe he had his uh, his his senses elsewhere. He was distracted uh, by the pee, baby. <laughs> <laughs> all all of the senses rushed from his brain. Um, now. Uh, we next ships, shift scenes to Aunt May's emergency meeting, which you know, I, I picture Aunt May having like a bridge club, you know, that's her meeting. <laughs> we're going to we're going to talk about we're going to talk about Mr. Smith's weeds and, and his unpainted fence. Uh, you know, that's, oh, her, that's her emergency with you and Ben, yeah. May. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you a story about poor Ben. Did you see the coupon for peas in the circular this week? Uh, that's the big news. But, uh, Have you read Mary Worth today? No, sorry. <laughs> She's being stalked by a man. Um, now, she gives a, she sends fake as Lamont, uh, you know, and she gives him the floor. And he gives a big old rambly speech, and the gist of which is, Dr. Talima did it all. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. He's the one who had Brava killed. He's the one behind revenge bombing the bridge. And he and he alone went into business for himself and created those killer moratori because clearly there are killer moratori on the field here. Now, speaking of the good doctor, we rejoin him in Barcelona, where he vows to himself to make things right again. And last we see, he is boarding a plane headed to Helsinki, Finland, for some reason. Hmm. Don't know what's going on there, but uh, I don't think we've heard of anything in Finland just yet. So I guess uh, another shoe is getting ready to drop. Now, from here, we get a couple of panels to follow, uh, showing Tam Van Ock and Zakir Shastri dealing with the realization that the cure isn't quite the sure bet as they'd been led to believe when they sign on. And so they both vow to get theirs. We rejoin Dan and the gals, and it looks as though they're beginning to actually look at Scanner as their leader. <laughs> oh, my, I actually can't believe this. I mean, seriously, what is the criteria to become a moratory <laughs> leader? I mean, seriously, what the qualifications seem like very loose as it is. You think about how we transition between, you know, Harold to Robert for a drink of water to Sheer to Bravo. I mean, it just there's no real sense of what you have to do to become a leader. I mean, especially when, you know, the Mr. Human Barcode himself was just promoted to become, you know, Bravo's heir apparent just out of nowhere. I mean, okay, this guy seems to know what he's talking about here. Uh, uh, he's the new leader. <laughs> he was here first, so we'll give it to him. Uh, <laughs> now, he gives a rousing pep talk about damning the Padilla and not going down without a fight. Nearby, Revenge emerges from the water looking like something straight out of yeah, Rambo with a Predator. Yeah. Totally it. badass scene here. It's like half face, half of his face is above the water, half of it's in the water. He finally pulls himself out of the drink, only to find himself surrounded by like dozens of Padilla soldiers and hardware. And he says, as we close out this issue, it's time for him to face the music and dance. All right, Revenge is about to go all Stallone on their asses here. Apollo, you know, <laughs> man, listen, this issue, I, I, I just loved it, and you yeah. know what? I'm finding myself just going crazy rooting for for Jason Edwards' Revenge. Yeah. I mean, he is like the team's like own version of the Hulk, but you know, he seems to be like a little more powerful than Robert, but you know, a little bit more mentally in check, I'd say. Sure, and, he, he uh, hasn't tattooed you know, his face yet. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Oh, I keep forgetting about that. What a disaster. You know, I mean, I just starting to think about this. I mean, these guys, you had the old generation, the third generation, Sheer, who died from just, you know, just a little fall oh, off, yeah. off a balcony. But these guys have been blown up in a train and they don't seem none worse for wear. What my question is, you know, are these new recruits built a little bit better? Like, you know, like within the laboratory setting I'm talking about. Like they I seem wonder, to have more yeah endurance and dexterity i don't know what what to think but they seem to have yeah. to be a little bit more sturdy and stable like than the other recruits because i mean at this point you think somebody would have been like like a land flare like and they're gone yes <laughs> but no like a lot of these people are surviving numerous amounts of issues so i don't know I, I, now another question is these were the ones that you know the paideia actually supervised the moratory process at this point i mean you no, they actually forced Jason Edwards into it, so they were aware of his training and setup. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if they manipulated the formula or manipulated Talima under direct orders and mandates to advance his project a little bit with more like a more long-standing and stable version of the moratorium, because these don't seem to be as erratic and explosive as as the original crew. That's a very good point. Yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that, but 
there's certainly I mean, it stands to reason that the that the formula and the process would improve over time. You know, you have lessons learned and best practices. And yeah, these and you're there's no joke. These are very, very sturdy when compared to the originals and, uh, you know, the black watch and all them. I mean, I mean, two of the black watch didn't even make it out of the garden. So (laughs) it's like uh, (laughs) here we got we got characters who uh, and I mean, We've already spoiled it, but we we know Scanner will show up in Electric Undertow. At least we know that much. So he's he's going to be around for a bit. Um, oh, and again, a couple others, Christopher. A couple others. Ooh, really? No, really? all oh, yeah. I saw oh, was the yeah. mustache. So. Oh, yeah. just wait. Okay, doke. So yeah, these are sturdier, more Tory for sure. Um, uh, great issue, great issue. But the the seams of truncation are are showing. Um, yeah, we can uh, but tell. the beauty part of this, even though we've had, I mean, think about it, we had a giant pitch force moratory to start the show. We had mm-hmm. the interview with John Celestri, which was amazing, mm-hmm. and we went sure. through a great issue. And now, for one of the final times, we get to dive into this gigantic letters page, and finally, oh yes, we have the appropriate number of letters that signifies this entire series. So when, let's let's just let's just hit them up, hit them up right now. And let's let's finally dig into some letters. We'll go long form on these. You want to hit them with the first one? Yes. Um, let's see here. Oh, wait a minute. My my bag is missing. My bag of letters is missing. What? Oh, damn it! I had I I swear I had this sack of letters right next to me. Where did they go? Oh, hot no. I, I mean, Chris, what did oh, you do to them? I'm so sorry, uh, folks. Uh, this is on me. My bad. Um. These things happen. These things. This is real life, folks. This is this is behind the curtain. We we thought we were going to hit you with the, you know just another supersized letters column, but uh, sadly, you know, I, I did I did just mail in my check to Columbia House. I wonder if these letters got <laughs> got mixed up with that. <laughs> um, exactly what happened to it. Damn uh, that Columbia know, House. You know, I, I'm I'm sure I forgot to put stamps on them, so I'm I'm guessing there'll be a return to sender, and maybe next time they'll be back at the house, and uh, we can go through we can go through the the mail strike or the strike mail or whatever the hell they call it. Um, oh boy. Well, I guess we could at least move on to the bull. No, no, we can't. No bullpen bulletins this week either. Uh, now, despite the fact that Marvel well, promised, oh, yeah, go ahead. Here we go. Go ahead. No, yeah, no, Marvel you're right. Promised us. They promised us the senses-shattering return of Stan's soapbox. Yes, Excelsior! Right? So we were all yep, let's do it. No soap for us. <laughs> what in the hell is happening here? Yeah, I mean, uh, butt, butt dive boot camp, the, it's, the ramifications are far-reaching. Uh, now, not satisfied with this, as we mentioned earlier, we even checked other Marvel books with a May 1989 cover date to see what we might find, right? Because this issue comes with zero bullpen bulletins. The other issues that came out this month, we looked in, in X-Factor, we looked in Alpha Flight, we looked in X-Men. They simply reran last month's bullpen page, uh, complete with the Mark Siri profile. And uh, I figured we... We probably could just drop the same audio we gave you last week, but ain't, ain't nobody got time for that. Uh, <laughs> we'll just hope for the best that maybe the bullpen's bulletin page stands soapbox and all. Maybe they make their triumphant return next time. They'll have, we like have a, a super bag of mail. Oh, boy. Can you imagine? Super sack. Yeah. Let me – that's issue 30 here. I'm going to – I have it in my in my sticky fingers here. And it's heavy. It's heavy. It's going to, a heavy uh, book. Son of a bitch. It's the same bullpen bulletin page. 
it's it's Mark Siri again. Are you kidding me? Well, we will have to find something to sprinkle to our fans next week. That's oh, all I can tell you. We're we're gonna have to go big. We're gonna have to go big to make up for this atrocity. Yes, this is insane here. I, I want I want DeFalco on the line right now. Got to yep. find out what's behind this. Here. We need to get these creators on board here and start answering some damn questions. Maybe Mark Siri gave them like five bucks to run his bullpen bulletin ad for like three <laughs> months in a row. I don't know. He really well, what, he really wants his he really wanted his roommates named uh, in his file. Well, well, one folks took advantage of this whole situation. They you know they took advantage of no letters page, no soapbox, and just who. What company oh. took advantage and wanted to advertise within these sturdy pages of moratorium? These are, are the fine folks at Campbell's Soup. What? We have a Campbell's Soup ad, and it's an interact. This is the Campbell's Can Do Puzzle page, by God. Oh, my God. Tell us about it, Chris. Well, I'm looking at all these Campbell's kids here, and uh, I, I, every time I see them, I think of, like, WCW-era Jim Ross. They <laughs> my look God. A lot, they Campbell's, look, my God. They look a lot like Jim Ross, but uh, we get some. Uh, we get the Campbell's can do, so you can find out what a kind of a Campbell's kid you are. And I mean, you can find out: are you are you a tricky kid? Are you an artistic kid? Are you an amazing kid? Are you a are you an autistic kid? kid? <laughs> are you? A... <laughs> if you finish all six of these, perhaps. Are you a sharp kid? Are you a clever kid? And uh, do you, you, uh, you do these puzzles. You, what do you get? You get a score. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. You get a score. And, oh, and get it, Campbell's. Yeah. If you're smart enough to turn the page upside down, you'll see your answers. And uh, I mean, that would make you the smartest Campbell's kid of all if you turn the book upside down and you uh, you get the answers ahead of time here. But this is this is one yeah. of the only ads in the entire book. It's true. And, and I just have the question: Why would Campbell's Campbell's soup? Above all, choose Strikeforce Moratory to advertise their soup. I mean, seriously, was there like a, a burgeoning demographic that Campbell's was trying to grab here? <laughs> I mean, seriously, if their demo was like, you know, hairy-ass 40-year-old crybabies, I mean, they nailed it, baby. <laughs> they got us. <laughs> well, one, one, one thing, you know, in an unrelated incident, uh, after reading this, I, I did buy lots of soup. This week, I'm not even joking. Ooh. And uh, yeah, so so I did buy my Campbell's. It actually triggered something in my head. Oh, Campbell's soup! I remember that. I love that. So I, now on my weight loss journey, Chris, with new certainly, I've become quite accustomed to Campbell's soup. So actually, this week I've had Campbell's tomato soup, which you know, with a little uh, little dash of pepper and a little something something, actually doesn't taste too bad. But my favorite. As a kid, used to be chicken with rice, but now it's beef and barley. Beef and barley. You know you're getting old when, I would love to have a nice can of beef and barley soup. Yes, I'm just uh, saying. Growing up, I loved the uh, chicken and dumplings uh, variety here, which you didn't find very often, but it was pretty good. Uh, Chicken and I don't know if I've ever had it. We're limited here in Canada, as you know, as I've talked many times. We didn't get no dumplings. It's like just clumps of uh, pasta. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not bad. But, uh, it's good though. But uh, right now, well, uh, I haven't, you know, I'm on the same weight loss journey, so I, I really haven't, because uh, I, what I really came across with Campbell soup was using them as uh, like step step savers when I'm cooking. So like if I make a chicken pot pie, yes. I'll use, you know, a can of cream of chicken and a can of cream of oh, celery, so and oh totally. So, oh, totally. I've got a can of cream of celery. I don't even know what to do with it. 
Oh, make a chicken pot pie, dude. Or chicken oh. pot pie soup, even. It's good. Yes, queen. I can't wait. Yes. Well, the but, beauty uh, part of this, the beauty part mm-hmm. of this, Chris, is that it, despite us making fun of Campbell's, it, it actually worked on me. It just took 32 years to for me to actually buy their soup, but by God, they did it. So good job, Campbell's soup. You know, it, Campbell's soup is good food. There you go. That, that, that's our that's our pitch. My favorite flavor right now is Icknek Udsne. <laughs> <laughs> is that Which, a German uh, soup? Is that what's happening there? It must be. It's number four in our list here uh, to find out if you're a speedy kid. Uh, if you're a speedy kid, you take Ichneck Udsnell. That's your favorite. But, uh, <laughs> I but love yeah, it. I mean, I mean, you mentioned it. This is like the only. There's like four ads in this book, and this is the only one we haven't discussed at length yet. So uh, and, it, and it makes no yeah, sense matter for this reading demographic. It does because I don't I don't know if one kid came away from uh, from this reading this book and went, Hey mom, can we just go ahead and get some Campbell's? Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. you tools. It didn't happen. Unless they had a whoop ass flavor. Because isn't, isn't that something <laughs> I have? I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's uh that's gonna actually do it, which is bizarre. And I mean. Judging by issue That's, 30, we we have the same bullpen, and we're gonna dig through other Marvel books just in case, just in case. But uh, I don't know, maybe Stan was too busy in Hollywood uh, selling uh, <laughs> selling Doctor Strange toothpaste or uh, or Uwatu the Watcher diapers or something. I don't know. Man. <laughs> Making a mess for future generations. What that bastard was doing, Stanley. You money gruzzler. Oh, boy. <laughs> so he was too busy in Hollywood to write, you know, Excelsior three times. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's where it's going to leave us. So uh, I guess great we'll episode, bro. Great oh, episode. Totally. Lots of fun. Get you get your money's worth here. But uh, you want to just do some plugging and we'll uh, we'll bug out. Absolutely. At first, I'd like to thank Mr. John Celestri for uh, for joining us this week 100%, and, and, 100%. and giving us the goods of what it takes to be an animator and talking about basically everything I grew up on, which is mm-hmm. uh, which was just amazing. So and you oh, know what? Totally. It's also been a fun time going through revisiting Pitch Force Moratory. So I got to come up with some good stuff for next week. And I think we got another little surprise for you. We're just not going to leave it at that. These next three episodes are going to be some ringers, brother. So we promise mm-hmm. you a good time heading out of this series. And you know what? Hit us up. Do me a favor. Don't worry about anything else I'm doing. Just hit me up on the Twitter. Talk about this episode. Tell us what you thought. And uh, just just give us some feedback. We'd really love that. And we'd actually like some mail in the mailbag as well. You know what I'm saying? For sure. <laughs> so, but anyway, Brother Chris, it has been a fantastic time. And uh, I, I, I'm, I, I almost have a tear on my cheek thinking that there's only two standard episodes left of this show. But uh, we oh, did it, brother. We did it. We've done it. We've done it. Yes. And uh, what else do we have going on here? Uh, here at the channel, we have a show called X Lapsed, which is something I'm doing here. It's been just about every day for the past few weeks. Uh, only taking it's a break for... Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun just... Uh, Getting my land legs back as it pertains to the current year X-Men stuff, uh, going through every issue of the Hox Pox Docs era and uh, having a real good time with it. Um, folks are engaging and, and you know, enjoy and seem to be enjoying it for uh, from what I can hear. So good stuff there. Uh, I'm really having a fun time. I mean, Moratory is still kicking on all cylinders here. So for the first time in a long time, I, I feel like... Uh, I feel like we're doing some good stuff here. <laughs> well, not that we're Absolutely. not doing good stuff, but I'm enjoying it more. I feel like <laughs> there's momentum. Um, so, uh, yes, for the first time in a while, I feel at peace. And uh, I thank everyone for their patience and uh, and for, you know, 
be, coming along with us on these uh, on these journeys. So really means the world. Uh, you, know, you could find us at Charlton underscore hero and Ace Comics on Twitter if you want to reach out. And uh, uh, I know at least one of us is very, very lonely and uh, likes to hear from people. Uh, I won't say which one, so you can send messages to both of no. us. Chris, uh, Chris thinks that. Chris thinks that he is he is <laughs> Get really, it? really suffering. Yeah. Both named Chris. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Uh, like I'm a genius, man. Like, you, you know we've been podcasting too long when uh, when that joke doesn't uh, that's, that's not even <laughs> funny. <laughs> it's not even a pun, damn it. Um, <laughs> but I think that's where we'll leave it this week. Here we thank you so so much for hanging out. It means the world to us that you do each and every week. Um, and I guess that'll uh, that'll wrap it. We'll let you get on with the rest of your day, the rest of your week, and we will see you here next time. And uh, we will talk to you again, as always, real soon. See ya.